world, welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy. We're back once again this week, and oh boy, do we have a good one lined up. Um, so let's just get right into it. Joining me as always, um, my two esteemed co-hosts, the first of which being my older brother, Cody, joining us from Illinois. Uh, Cody, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, it's been a very good day. Uh, been a project, something we do every year at work, but something that is very work intensive and extremely stressful for a short period and finally wrap that up officially today. So I'm done with that. My schedule clears up a lot. Um, and to that end, uh, in case you were wondering, that is why instead of a, a fancy beer or just a plain water, I am drinking a very large rum and coke right now. <laughs> so that is like going to be a fun one tonight, folks. Yes, I'm not, it, it's not. It is not literally like a big gulp cup from a gas station, but it is pretty much the same size as a big gulp. It is like it, a 32 ounce cup. Yeah, I was going to say it's one of those cups you see at Walmart where it just has like 32 ounce on the side. It doesn't really tell you anything other than, hey, you can put a lot of shit in this. Yeah, you, you rolled into Sonic and you said, give me the dark Route 44. <laughs> the guy named Eric in the back, he just shoves a four logo in the back of a Dr. Pepper and hands it to you. Um, oh, God, that sounds like the worst drink combination <laughs> I could possibly imagine. Um, I'll, I'll, have, I'll have something to follow up on that in a second. But um, first, my other co-host joining us from Indianapolis, it's Jack John. Um, Jack John, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It was a nice weather day today, so I finally took my uh, my bike out, uh, did some cycling for the first time this year, and that's always a good day for me. Got some sun, got my fat ass out of the house finally. So a good, a good productive mental health day for me, getting out and about. Fantastic. Um, I forgot to mention this part, but in case you didn't know, um, I am Alex. I am coming to you from St. Louis. Um, so my my, my follow up on that was. <clears throat> Cody, are you the only one of the three of us that actually was around to have the original Four Loco? It was before my time. Yes. Yes, yeah. I did have the original Four Loco. I think they stopped making it with the original formula when I was like 22, maybe. And you yeah. guys would have been. We would have been. You guys like would have been. college, but. Was, yeah, yeah you, would, like... you wouldn't have been old enough to drink legally, which is not to say that you didn't, but nobody you regularly got booze from bought Four Loko. Yeah. Right. And that was, was you, and you didn't buy me Four Loko. So. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, the, I don't two hate times, that much. the two times that I had Four Loko, distinctly remembering it, I was underage. Uh, the first time was the summer right before I went to college. And I distinctly remember my sister giving me one and going, yeah, no, these don't have, like, the shit that'll get you fucked up anymore. But then, um, uh, this was around the time when people just didn't give a shit about their bodies, so we would make five Locos and just put a five-hour energy in it. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Which is basically I, just like, I, hey, I, we're gonna make OG Locos for you. But that was in 2011, so a, it was still yeah. way before my time. That's I think that's the, I uh, actually, the I think it's a cocktail of chemicals they put into the injections uh, when they execute people. <laughs> I actually the five I, it's hour, more like now we've got the lemon lime. <laughs> yeah, it, it's more like rocket fuel. I actually did something similar uh, my senior year when I was working on a particularly difficult final. It was about three in the morning and I needed something. And I had, of course, a, a bunch of monster in the fridge just to keep me awake and also some five hour energy. But it was already 3 a.m. and I was already kind of slap happy. So I basically <laughs> dropped the five hour energy into the cup of monster uh, um, like an Irish car bomb and just chugged it. Um, that got the, that got the job done. Uh, I 
my eyeballs were twitching for the next two hours, but other than that... Your whole body does not go into shock while doing that. I was going to imagine, like, you like, did, like, a splashy Jaeger or something, but no, you just you just did two incredibly horrible, horrible things to your body at once. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie mm-hmm. Who Framed Roger Rabbit when they yes. force him to take the double <laughs> shot of bourbon at the bar, but that's yes. pretty much what happened. <laughs> I think my, my favorite description I've ever heard of someone's fucked up study habits during finals... Um, my good friend Brandon from law school. Uh, I'm trying to remember what he described to me as he drank an entire pot of coffee at like uh, midnight. And then at the end of it, he was uh, uh, too hyper to go to sleep. So he got drunk and he drank a bunch of Miller mm-hmm. Lite. And I think he also said that all the coffee gave him diarrhea. And so he wanted to drink something <laughs> binding. So he drank some milk, but turns out the milk was expired and it just gave him even worse diarrhea. Jesus Christ. Are you, are you sure it was the coffee and not the Miller Lite that did that? Because... I think it all became just one heinous <laughs> swill. I was going to say, the, the guy's intestines were like drafting a letter to their congressman, probably. That's, that's like hitting in blackjack, but you're already at 24. That's just, you're making it worse than you've already lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so, despite the fact that we're all having a good time here, um, <laughs> difficult time in the world right now. Um, could accurately say that for quite a while now, but continues to be true. Um, very divisive times, people, um, you know, more split apart than ever due to the events last couple years, um, which only continue on. And sometimes I just start to think, you know, maybe, maybe what we need is just a common enemy that all of us can agree on. Um, and for a while it didn't seem like that was coming, but, um, today read an article that, um, uh, giant spiders, the size of children's hands are expected to start parachuting down and colonizing the east coast of the United States. So be careful. Now, when what you, you say wish for. colonizing, you mean killing people and taking their land? Because these are some very advanced spiders. If that is the case, the reason big. the reason that they know they're the size of babies' hands is because those spiders have been eating babies whole, and it starts with the hand. Yeah, they're uh, <laughs> yeah, they're rare uh, Goliath baby hand eating spiders. <laughs> It's the, the <laughs> genus name of it, of course. So, yeah, to um, to our listeners on the East Coast, um, which we do have... Good a luck. Uh, be on the lookout for giant spiders to start parachuting from the sky very soon. So, as, as if this weren't freakish enough, can you imagine what's going to happen when those things land on New Jersey? Oh. They're going to be <laughs> sucking in that toxic garbage. They're going to become... It's going to be like like Spider-Man, but worse. <laughs> You're just going to have a bunch of like, it, yeah, like if Spider-Man, if, if Spider-Man had been a spider that was bitten by a radioactive human, um, <laughs> that's that's how this is. You're going to have an army of those things advancing across the East Coast until, of course, they run into the drunk Irish in Boston, at which yeah. point they get their asses soundly yeah. kicked and, so kick and have to turn but, back. Then they got a war on their hands. But see, we also have to worry about the ones that land in Florida and then get meth and then shotguns. Oh, boy. Can you imagine a methed out... Team up with the gators, yeah. A methed out large spider wielding a shotgun um, coming to a city near you. I mean, he could wield two shotguns. He's got eight legs. Shit. That's like, you know, we'll see how this plays out. Because, like, (laughs) we've... We hear at times about, like... In you know invasions, infestations from scary foreign insects, and they usually don't pan out. And there, there sometimes are like 
troubling underlying social things going on there, like the scary thing about like you know Japanese murder hornets or Africanized yeah. bees. But my response to that is always, can you imagine what a fucking Americanized bee would be like? That's scarier than shit. Right. <laughs> Who's more terrifying than Americans? I don't know. I, I think it would be more like your standard bumblebee where it's just fat and bumping into stuff. <laughs> now that's cute. We, we, we call it the bumblebee. Everyone else calls it the American bee. <laughs> the Snorlax of insects. <laughs> Well, and, you know, I also don't know anything like whether they're going to be mean spiders. Because, like, yeah. you know, like back home on the farm, like, you know, every now and then one of those, like, huge garden spiders will set up shop in, in one of the gardens. Oh, or, yeah. I fucking love those things. Yeah, those yeah. things are great. They don't harm anybody. They eat harmful insects and they're they're beautiful. They yeah. spin beautiful webs. Also, they know. spin yeah. they spin some absolutely gorgeous webs. Yeah, absolutely. Like, huge, it is beautiful really webs. Cool, to, cool, cool to look at these things. Yeah, so I don't know if, if they're going to be, like, mean big spiders. Yeah. Um, like, you hear the stories of people from Australia, like the huntsman spiders that are, like, you know, the size of a small dog. And they'll just set up shop in a house and they're, like, you know, they really aren't aggressive to humans. They're just really scary <laughs> to look at and they, we, we, right. we, like, give them names and stuff. Even for I was going to say, I would, I would totally make a pet out of a spider that big. No. Honestly, when I was at your apartment, I'm surprised I didn't see one amongst everything else. There was uh, actually a, there is a spider that has been living in my bathroom for like a year now. That, and I don't, I don't typically kill stuff unless it becomes a serious problem. Right. So, I mean, he's just, he's just spidering around in there. He's given me no reason to hurt him. So he's just kind of hanging out there. I do not have a name for him, but I don't have flies in my house anymore. Yeah. That's one thing I never have. He, he's a good roommate, but I've noticed he's using my shampoo a lot. We're going to have to have a talk about that at the next roommate <laughs> meeting. But other than that, he's cool. The one time I saw a spider in my bathroom um, was a couple years ago. Um, I was doing my morning routine, and I looked over in the bottom of the bathtub, and there was like a little tiny jumping spider in there. Um, and Freddie, my big fat cat, walks in without missing a beat, walks in, goes to the bathtub, jumps in, eats the spider, and leaves. I'm like, what? <laughs> this was like the first couple of weeks of working from home during the pandemic. It's like, is this the shit that you're doing when I'm not here? He's walking around eating spiders. This is the the IRL Spidey sense. He just he could <laughs> he could smell it from the other room. And right on, I, I hear I hear food in the other room. Let me go check this out. Right on cue. Literally as I'm saying that, Freddie jumps up onto this table and is uh, uh, sniffing on my shit. So um, yeah, your ears must have been burning. Um. Well, so yeah, for for all of our um, all of our Eastern listeners, be on the lookout for the um, uh, huge parachuting spiders to be uh, uh, arriving in your neighborhood sometime soon. But um, hey, speaking of um, wretched, uh, horrible insects um, moving to the East Coast, um, clown of the week, Carson Wentz <laughs> traded to the Washington Commanders. Oh, thank fuck. Jack, do you have anything you want to say about this? Because, I mean, I might Carson I might Wentz actually... was a, an Indianapolis Colt for one year, and it seemed like that was well enough for you. It, <sighs> well, I don't hate him. I might actually openly root for the Colts this year. I might actually go to training camp and, and, and see what we have <laughs> this year. And, uh, I don't want to say optimistic. We technically have zero quarterbacks, and uh, there's a couple names that have been floating around Schefter's, Adam Schefter's tweets that have me curious uh, but if 
If we end up kissing titties in the fall, I'm okay with it, I guess. Yeah, it's like, you know, if you get Mitchell Trubisky, like, at least he's funny. You know, right. he, he just likes to kiss titties, whereas Carson Wentz is like a an anti-vaxxer and a total shithead who his teammates yeah. all seem to hate. Um, who yeah. we, I think, lost at one point during the season because he wasn't vaxxed. And we were just like, well, cool, I guess we won't go to the playoffs then. See, that's the kind of dumbassery you can really only get away with if you're Aaron Rodgers, as was evidenced <laughs> by this season. Ah. And barely. And Carson and Wentz barely. and fucking Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. Two-time MVP, and still everyone's like, actually, I think I hate him still. Yeah, and and um, it, let, let's say you go out and get Jimmy Garoppolo. Is he going to be good? No, but he's really hot. So <laughs> yeah, I, pregnancy okay. rates in Indianapolis skyrocketing. It's it's good for I the was local gonna, economy. I, was gonna say, I mean, the it's it's going to get a lot better looking in those stands. Yeah. it's like when you have Philip Rivers here, you're expected to you know put a lot of schools into like the next program because you're putting a hundred fucking kids into a new school district. I read. Um, I mean, it seems like every week there's another story coming out about how how unlikable Carson Wentz is. <laughs> I saw one reference that apparently... Um, so here's a fun fact about Carson Wentz. Um, in his career, zero playoff wins and I think 42 fumbles. Um, <laughs> the, the Eagles did win the Super Bowl while he was on the roster, but of course uh, he tore his ACL. Big Dick Nick. And yeah. uh, Nick Foles led them to a championship. People right. love Nick Foles. And I saw a story reference this week of during that season apparently him he was sitting there with a group of other um injured players and he was just whining about how good the team was doing without them and like the him and some an unnamed other injured player had to be separated from because he just wanted to beat the shit out of them um people (laughs) speculated it might have been jason peters which my enemy is whoever that would have been fucking hilarious (laughs) jason peters is one of the largest human beings I've ever seen in my entire life. He would have torn Carson Wentz in half. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah. he would have picked him up and bitten off his head like a slim jim. Yeah. So total shithead um, Carson Wentz now off to play. Plays for the biggest shitheads. Plays the for commanders. A, a team run by Dan Snyder. Sounds great, <laughs> fellas. Um, I can't wait for that season right hard knocks. So, um, hard knocks, everyone hates us edition. No, they've, they've done the Cowboys. Oh, um, yeah, that too. So, uh, yeah, um, happy trails to our clown of the week, Carson Wentz. Um, Jack John, did you have any anything else to say on that matter? Um, I mean, I could make a very, very dumb Cayman Wentz joke, but he doesn't even deserve that, so fuck him. I appreciate your, your uh, restraint on that. I'll make a lot of terrible jokes later, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, all right. Optimistic for like an eight and nine team this year. <laughs> all right. Well, um, yeah. So we got some pretty big topics this week we need to get into. But before we do that, we have one final thing. Um, we got a listener email that I wanted to share this week um, from our good friend Pookie. Um, Pookie sent us in some feedback um, from our last episode, episode twenty-one, one for all the ladies out there. Um, Pookie was just on vacation. Do you know when he got back? He got back like two or three days ago, very, very recently. Yeah, just in the last couple of days here, if if that yeah. long. Depending on the timing, th- this was a few days ago he sent this, so he may have yeah. been drunk and on vacation when he sent this. Um, <laughs> last night, drunk and like throwing it all at the wind kind of night. In mm-hmm. so, um, that said, I mean, if so, um, you know, it's it's. Uh, 
very coherent. So congrats on that. Um, first of all, he he does have a correction for us, and this is this is something we got wrong. All right, if you recall, in our last episode, um, we uh, issued a PSA as a podcast um, that you should not squeeze uh, your pet's butts; they don't like it. Um, but there is an addendum to that, as Pookie points out. Um, sometimes your pet your pets uh, need help with expressing their anal glands, and then you do have to squeeze their butts. That is true. So um, I, I will issue a correction. Do not squeeze your pet's butts. Um, they don't like it, with the exception of if you need to help them express their anal glands, which they still might not like, but they're, they're, they're better off for it in the long run. So, Yeah, I, I don't think they enjoy that either. I know I wouldn't. <laughs> Yeah. I love any email that goes that opens up with by the way express your pet's anal glands. Yeah. <clears throat> um the next line uh stern alex is my favorite alex never let him leave so I will be uh um try and be as uh, joyless and miserable on this episode as possible. Um and then final point he says uh he uh has a request to um bring a guest onto the show. Would either of you like to guess who that guest is? Um, I'm thinking, well, so considering, uh, she's branching into some, some Twitch stuff herself, uh, I'm going to say Pookie's wife, Kelsey, maybe. Jack John, what's your guess? I was going to guess drunk Pookie again. Well, Cody, I think it's funny you say that you might get him in trouble for that because it actually is him, just him in in general. (laughs) Um, uh, his exact comments, uh, that Pookie fellow was funny. He should come back on the show. Um, which During every episode, you you, yes. you know when we do this, you know you are welcome to come on like pretty much any week if you give yeah. us like five minutes notice. Yeah. Pookie um, you don't even have to bring Discord. a topic. You can just... Yeah, it, it's it's okay. He's not going to hear it before the episode comes out. So he's, yeah. he's not going <laughs> to he's not going to rate us later. Yeah. Um, I like that Pookie inadvertently quotes Simpsons again, uh, basically going, anytime that uh, the three guys are around and Pookie isn't there, everyone should be asking, where's Pookie? <laughs> um, yeah, Pookie, I'd say that is probably, not only can that be arranged, that's probably one of the easiest things in the world to arrange. So uh, <laughs> that's something we can work out sometime. And we'll go ahead and plug, um, you know, uh, uh, when this comes out, uh, assuming this comes out uh, Thursday morning, uh, be on the lookout this evening because we are going to be having our second D&D session um, where our DM is the Great Pookie. The Great Pookie. The Great Pookie. One of my favorite bits of feedback I got because I did have um, several friends watch um, our first session. Some friends of mine who, who um, don't always watch your streams, Jack, or weren't familiar with it before. My favorite yeah. was um, from a friend of the show, Jeff. His comment was... Um, my my favorite part was uh no he said um it was perfect when the dm took a huge rip off his vape like <laughs> that's pookie yep so if you want to see him um, this is DM, guys night folks dm yeah. a phenomenal session with a great storyline of D and take some huge vape rips tune in this evening to jack's twitch channel at jack john i i seriously had so much fucking fun doing it last time i cannot wait yeah. i am so excited Featuring all of us doing various accents. It's it's right. fantastic. Right, right. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Well, I, I think we got through everything we needed to get through. So um, that all being said, um, as always, um, we're here to talk about some guys. So let's get right into this. Um, Jack, John, could you could you lead us in, please? Yeah, I think I remember. It's um, the guys. 
Fantastic. Cody, how far into that um that Jack and Coke are you? Um uh, well let's uh let's let's get a cup check here, because it is transparent. <laughs> Alright. Not you, too far. You made a little yeah. progress. So uh while you're only at that level, let's go ahead and get to you. Uh yeah. who, who's your guy this week? Yeah, I, I don't know why you ask, because it's not going to get any better. I don't know <laughs> what the hell you were waiting for there. Yeah, ultimately, um, how, what's going to happen with this is when Jack and I are doing our topics, the heckling is going to get worse. Yeah. So, uh, I'm going back to the well here this weekend, folks. We're talking old-timey baseball yet again. And this is... I guess serendipity is the word I'm looking for, because this guy... I've got just a list on my phone of some old timey baseball players I've looked into because as we've discussed, they are a great source of material for the kind of stuff we do. There's just so many freaks, drunks and weirdos um, in the world of old timey baseball. This guy has been on my list since the beginning as has another guy I've already talked about. And I did not realize that these two stories cross over. So this is kind of the first ever. Here's a guy sequel. Uh, the first time wow. we're ever talking about a subject that has been mentioned in a previous story beyond like presidents or people that are super famous and important. I'm, I'm, I believe you are correct about that. I can't yeah. think of another instance. So uh, Ray Chapman was born uh, January 1891 in Beaver Dam, Kentucky. Ooh, um, yeah. And that's that's all I will say about Kentucky. Uh, I'm going to be good. Shout out um, to the one person we had listened to the show one time from Louisville and then never again. Well, and yeah. And also, uh, I just, I really like your bourbon and I don't want you to ban me from ever buying it again. So I'm going to be real nice yeah. to the Kentuckians. Yeah. Uh, Alex, here's one for us. He was raised in Heron, Illinois. Oh, oh very not nice. too terribly far from here. Yeah. So um, Ray Chapman was a shortstop and played a pretty Good long career in baseball. Um, a couple proposed nicknames I have for him. You could call him either the ultimate team player or alternately baseball's kiss of death, depending on how you like to look at things. Oh, God. Those are wildly different. Yeah. But they both apply, as we will talk about in a little bit. He uh, broke into baseball, into Major League Baseball, that is, in uh, 1912 with the Cleveland Naps. Uh, among whose opponents were the Cincinnati Blankies and the Pittsburgh Pacifiers. Uh, oh, that's great. Really, <laughs> I'm really doubling up on the cute humor tonight. Yeah. Just like as as see, that's, as that's preventative one. penance for what I'm going to do later, probably. Another another oh, one God. of our jokes that our mom's going to like. Yep. But uh, yeah, the, the, the Cleveland Naps... Um, I don't know exactly why the fuck they called them that. I... I I figured I could I, I, look it up, but it's funnier. Whatever is going to be in my head is just funnier. Well, and, so and I'm just going to let it go. It was back then, so there's a non-zero chance it's something racist. So let's just leave it at that. Well, well, there, well, there well, is like mean, a they weird. Became the Cle- they became the Cleveland Indians. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as as a slight like Indianapolis's nickname for whatever dumbass reason is Naptown. So there might be like a weird Midwestern thing about the word nap that I don't fully understand. I thought they only named it that after you you started living there. That is true, though. I do like naps. Um, so originally the Cleveland Naps, which soon became the Cleveland Indians. Um, he was a solid shortstop. Uh, maybe not great, but very good. Uh, had a knack for drawing walks, 
bunting and the sacrifice, all very old school baseball skills. Yeah. Um, we'll talk a little bit in a, in a while on why it was so ironic that his main skill set on the field was giving himself up. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, there's some poetic irony there, but I, I don't want to get into it just yet. Um, he actually set the single season record for sacrifice hits in 1917. Um, in 1918, led the league in both runs scored and walks. Um, yeah. He is second all time in sacrifice hits as a right handed hitter, behind only one of my favorite great baseball names of all time, Stuffy McInnes. <laughs> Stuffy McInnes, huh? Stuffy McInnes either was a baseball player or a prospector. You can't have that name <laughs> and do anything but those two things. Stuffy it's, McInnes. It's, yeah. You are either um, spitting tobacco tobacco juice on your cleats for the game or uh, walking into a saloon going, gold, gold. <laughs> Yeah, Sam. Pretty sure I those are the only that. two. I've been watching Deadwood recently. I'm pretty sure I just saw that character. I keep meaning to watch that, but I'm I'm sure I will get that reference as soon as I do. Um, he batted over 300 three different times. Uh, was a solid defensive shortstop and probably the team's best base stealer during his time in Cleveland. So overall, pretty good player. Yeah, um, kind of like solid like leadoff and, hitter type of guy. Yeah, he was a leadoff hitter and. Another thing I want to keep pointing to, all of his skills were complementary skills. They are yep. great team player skills. Like the, They are all set up to make things better for the team without right. necessarily having a whole lot of glory for yourself in there. It's, it's all about like, setting up other it's setting up other guys to do well. The like small baseball, like one one back here, one run here, like very, very minimalist, but also very productive. He's a guy that, like, the, the commentators, even despite being a good player, would, like, kind of obnoxiously, like, slobber all over. Yeah. He's like a David Eckstein of that era. Uh-huh. <laughs> Real gym rat. He was such a good, he was such a good teammate. He was one of the only players that Ty Cobb considered a friend. Imagine hey. what a great dude you have to be oh. for Ty Cobb not to hate you. <laughs> Maybe the most miserable <laughs> prick in baseball history, Ty Cobb. <laughs> Ty Cobb, that's what he did. He hit the ball and he hated people. Those were the only two <laughs> things he did. Ty Cobb hated Babe Ruth. Uh, it's because yeah. he thought he was black, but like he's, he hated <laughs> Babe Ruth. <laughs> Horrible so, man, Ty Cobb. Um, so his career up to this point had been serviceable, but kind of unremarkable, at least in the flashier stat categories. He wasn't a household name necessarily. Reminds me a lot of a guy like Jack Wilson from the Pittsburgh Pirates in the early 2000s, if you know who that is. I can, it, I the can see that. Pittsburgh fans know him. They love him. Nobody else has a fucking clue who he is. Except huge baseball nerds like us. Yeah. Um, in 1919, a funny thing happened. A funny thing that we've talked about on this podcast before. See, in 1919, Cleveland was playing a game, and... Ray Chapman's team and notorious drunk Ray Caldwell was yeah. struck by lightning while yeah. pitching the ninth inning of a shutout. That oh, was that, that was uh was that episode four, the baseball themed episode? No, that was episode eight. Episode eight. So to get the full story, check out episode eight if you have not heard it. Yeah. It's uh it's a it's a fun episode for men and it and it really is a very good story. Um 
Ray Chapman was, of course, the man who Caldwell told to, quote unquote, give me the dang ball and point me towards the plate. So here we see the start of Ray Chapman, the ultimate team player, being extremely bad luck for Ray Caldwell in particular. Um, So for Ray Chapman, uh, he was getting toward the end of his career at this point. Um, He was a veteran heading into the 1920 season and had also just married into a very wealthy and uh, prestigious Cleveland family. Uh, And a lot of people speculated that it would probably be his final season. How right they were. (laughs) Just probably not for the reasons they thought. Um, What happened at the culmination of Ray Chapman's career? Well, on August 16th, 1920, Cleveland played the Yankees at the Polo Grounds. Yankees were throwing their submariner Carl Mays. It was a late afternoon. And because of the late afternoon, the sun was behind the pitcher. Now, mm-hmm. this is before they had figured out the batter's eye yet, which is I, I can't imagine having to play without that. That's that's something you don't um, really miss until it's gone. But like. I remember because of where we played baseball growing up, we never really had that problem, but if you've ever tried to see a baseball coming at you with the sun behind it. Yeah. Good fucking luck. Yeah. What complicated this was that at the time, baseball players tended to doctor the ball to make it harder to see. And we'll talk more about that in a little while. Mm -hmm. But because of some combination of these factors, Chapman did not see the fastball that Mays threw him. Ooh. And they know he didn't see it because he did not move at all. He did not react in the slightest, apparently. He was completely still until the ball hit him in the head so hard that the sound it made had Mays thinking he'd somehow hit it with his bat. In fact, he picked up the ball and threw to first. (laughs) Now, that sound was not the ball hitting the bat. Mm. That sound was the ball hitting Ray Chapman's skull. Yeah. Um, this is before batting helmets. Right. Yeah, I was gonna say, what's the what's the safety protocol in this era? How how much of None. skin yeah. to ball contact is yeah. this? Non-existent. This is a yeah. this is a hat. This is a baseball cap, not unlike a, the one you are a, wearing. A wool cap. Yeah. A wool cap trying to absorb the impact of I don't know how hard they were throwing back then. I know the ball was a little different. And of course, you know, Mays being a submariner might've had something to do with it too. But apparently this thing was, it got in there pretty good. Cause I mean, when this thing hit him, they, you know, people still talk about the sound it made. Mm. Well, you know, it's as much as it sucks seeing someone get hit in the head during a baseball game, it's not unprecedented. It has happened. Um, you know, they have to take precautions, but, um, you know, the, usually they they just take a little bit of time off and come back good as new. So I'm I'm sure that's yeah. I'm sure that's what happened with Mr. Chapman I mean, here as well. In the in the baseball episode that we did, I talked about getting beamed in the head. Like it happens. It's it's yeah. a part of the game. So I'm sure he was taken to a local medical facility and wound up being okay, right? Well, you are one for two. Um, <laughs> so just we'll we'll go on a a, a blow by blow. Oh, um, choice words. You know, yeah. <laughs> 
So first thing that happened is umpire. Are are we we talking about Ray Chapman or Daryl Strawberry? Hey, (laughs) that's an '80s slam. Oh man, oh you are you are killing it. Whatever fucking shitty '80s (laughs) comedy stand-up special was on HBO at that point. Um, Yeah, I don't even know. Yeah, whatever, whatever the fuck they used to put Bill Maher on all the time. Um. Umpire Tommy Connolly checked on him immediately, of course, because the guy just got wanged in the head with a, a baseball going very, very fast. Um, what he saw was that he was bleeding from his left ear. Ooh, that's, so, that's not good. And of course, you don't have major medical staff on site at this point, so he's screaming for a doctor. Like, get a fucking doctor. Somebody in the stands has <laughs> to be a doctor. And there's, there's like a low-level surgeon who's like six beers in going... Ah, let me look at him. That that is like, <laughs> you know, among other reasons, that's why it's so good to have like trainers <laughs> at sporting events. Yeah, it's like you know, you never know if you're going to have a doctor there, and if they are, most of the people there are hammered. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, players from both teams rushed over, except for Mays. Carl Mays, for whatever reason just stood there on the mound this whole fucking time waiting for waiting for them to get done. Um I mean <laughs> he probably he also threw to first afterwards like gives zero fucks. Well, I mean at, at the time he thought he had somehow managed to hit the ball with his bat. Or after he's so the, after the umpire after you hear big Tommy Connolly yell out, "Hey, this guy's bleeding from his fucking ear." <laughs> At that point, you have no choice but to at least pretend to be concerned. <laughs> um, but Carl Mays didn't do that. Hey, old-timey baseball, um, things were different then. What can I say? Um, Mays' final coherent words before losing consciousness, ironically enough, and again, just, just such a good, solid dude to the end, said, I'm all right, tell Mays not to worry. Aww. I'm like, Ray, first of all, no, you're not. You're you're dying, <laughs> sir. What you thought you, you, you said got... was that, but you really said. <laughs> <laughs> also, you don't need to tell Maze not to be concerned because he apparently is not. Yeah, <laughs> he he did not seem yeah. like he gave a May- fuck at all. Maze responded to this uh, with a sounds good thumb up. <laughs> he responded with the so is that game early because I want to go to the bar now <laughs> um, he was taken to the hospital uh, but unfortunately Ray Chapman passed away at 4.40am the next morning leaving behind a pregnant wife oh jeez now yeah here is um, kind of the aftermath of this because it did bring about some changes the most significant of these was that doctoring the ball was now illegal. Now there were, it, it wasn't just this that led them to do that. I mean, there had been pushback on that for a while now. It had been kind of a contentious thing, but players would put, they would use dirt, um, mud, tobacco juice, whatever they had essentially to rub on the ball and make it, come out of your hand differently and get a more unpredictable flight path. They also would mess with the actual physical structure of the ball. They would scuff it, scrape it, even sandpapering it at times to give it a more unpredictable movement and make it harder for the batter to see. Hmm. 
And of course, because of what happened to Ray Chapman, that was used as a primary reason why, hey, maybe we shouldn't make it yeah. impossible for people to see the projectile that's being thrown at them. Maybe we shouldn't let the pitcher have a belt sander behind him as he's just beating the shit out of the ball before he throws it. <laughs> he's just got one of those bowling ball polishers. <laughs> <laughs> or one of those weird ball washing machines they have on golf courses. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it just... It, the, the shit they let them get away with was, was unbelievable. Um... And of course, with the outlawing of doctoring baseballs, naturally became uh, folded into the outlawing of the spitball, which again fucked Ray Caldwell because he was the <laughs> master of the spitball and one of the most legendary spitballers of all time. So, even in getting beaned to death himself, Ray Caldwell could not stop making life hard. For, or, or, sorry, Ray Chapman could not stop making life hard for Ray Caldwell. <laughs> Like, well, what the fuck am I going to do now? I guess I'll just go get struck by lightning again. <laughs> what he actually did was get really, really drunk. Yeah, um, you're, you're probably right. That's what he did for the rest of his I'm, life. I'm, sure, I'm, I'm just imagining sure right he's just looking up going, God, kill me now. And he's like, hold on, let me grab the bolt. And he's just like charging that <laughs> like he's Zeus. Motherfucker, I tried. <laughs> I have tried every way I know. I don't know how you're still here either. Just rolling up his sleeves. Why I oughta. <laughs> Um, interestingly enough, though, it wouldn't be an it would be another 30 years before um, Major League Baseball started including uh, the helmet before baseball players had to wear helmets, which would seem to me to be by far the most obvious choice of rules to change after yeah. this whole incident. But what the fuck do I know? Um, a dude gets hit in the fucking head and he like has like zero time to react to it. And they're like, all right, look. Literally, that ball was scratched too many times. He would have moved if it hadn't been <laughs> for that. That's the problem here. It, yeah, I mean, I, probably, but also, you know. <laughs> it sounds like the, the thought process was, you know, upon a player getting hit in the head with a pitch and dying, not that we should do more to protect the head, just that <laughs> they should make it easier for guys to know when to duck. Is that incorrect? Look, that seems yeah. to be roughly what it was. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, welcome. That's why baseball, I think, is such an American institution, <laughs> yeah. because that is a very American yeah. attitude. The, right. the integrity of the game does not give a shit about your health. It cares about how the game is perceived. <laughs> God. Fucking Tim McCarver back here. <laughs> Old baseball cranks. Um, so that is the life and career of uh, Ray Chapman. I know it was a shorter one, but I, I figured since we had already done Ray Caldwell, we couldn't not talk about Ray Chapman. Um, so my big question to the two of you, if you could have one major league baseball rule change because of you, what would you want it to be? And this can be from the standpoint of a player, a fan, a coach, whatever. What do you want to do that makes Major League Baseball change its rules? If I was a player, I, I think I'd like to institute a rule that uh, if enough of a plurality, and we can haggle over how many, if enough of a plurality agree, not probably not that many, um, like we can take like an intermission during the game if we really want to, go back, play some video games, put a few back, maybe <laughs> smoke a little herb, 
come back just when we're feeling like it. You know, take yeah. things at our own pace. There's no need to rush. Yeah. You, you can stretch that regular game into a, uh, a double header. Just hey, c- come back at five o'clock when I'm when I'm good and buzzed. It's the seventh inning siesta. Yeah, there you go. I um, I'm gonna be a little more chaotic than Alex. I want to invoke the Airbud rule. Hmm. Uh, there's nothing in the rules that says a dog can't play baseball, and I'm going to take that to its absolute limit, and I'm going to start nine golden retrievers. And I'm going to firmly stand on that principle until the MLB says otherwise. And I'm going to continue to start nine golden retrievers every game. It would be the first time the leadoff hitter ever stole a base and then buried it. <laughs> like, think about it. What what better fielding than a bunch of dogs who love catching balls? My, my guess is you will have a very poor record, but excellent attendance. Oh, oh also the most... Also the most well-fertilized field in the league. (laughs) Here's a baseball rule that I've... Nobody's ever been able to answer this for me. Obviously, you wouldn't do this because there's no reason why you ever would. But just in theory, if a fielder wanted to wear gloves on both hands, would would that be allowed? Is there something in the rules that said you can only wear glove on one hand? Like, you wouldn't because it's stupid, but just if you wanted to. I think I don't know because there are certain like glove regulations you have to follow. But I don't know if there is any specific <laughs> language in the rule book that says it must only be worn on one hand because that's probably so actually that feeds into my answer. Because my answer was going to be I want them to um because they don't really regulate the size of specific gloves. They, I, I want to be the first guy to go out there with a huge, just gigantic glove. Yeah. It's like a, a fucking Bugs Bunny glove. Mm-hmm. And I want them to have to put in writing that you can't use a cartoonishly <laughs> large glove because of me. Like they out there looking like, like hamburger helper. Just like they've got to do a math. Uh, they've got to do like a math rule where it's like the circumference of your hand plus two point five or some bullshit <laughs> metric. I was like, all right, clearly hand sizes account for something, but this is stupid. Here's a, here's a joke for you, Jack John. You'd look like you just came back from Glove World. <laughs> oh, that's 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 some good high brass SpongeBob there. That's right. <laughs> all right, good answers. Good answers. All righty. Well, yeah, good first topic, and uh, yeah, I'll be in- intrigued to see if we ever do any any other like uh, sequel topics like that. Um, seems like some of these could be conducive to yeah. it, but I'd never considered that before. So um, I think I'm I'm going to touch on that a little bit with mine, just because there's so many fucking people um, that are interesting in mine when we get to it. It does intersect with a few other worlds. So um, with that being said, um, yeah, let's just get right into it. Jack John, who's your guy? My guy is former professional football player Adam Jones, better known by his nickname, Adam Pac-Man Jones. Yeah, and for kind of our, our understood notoriety rules, like 15 years ago, Pac-Man would have been way out of the question, but enough time's yeah. passed. Yeah. I think it is time for a retrospective on the life of Pac-Man right. Jones. I think that and. And honestly, like, Pac- so Pac-Man, and we'll get into it later, Pac-Man was really big from like, 2006 to like 2012 and it was in a time where i didn't realize how much shit he was doing until i researched more about him yeah yeah he he kind of got memory hold 
But I mean, he was a headline newsmaker in in the world of yeah. sports for a while. <laughs> during during that time in my life, I was doing a lot of getting home from school and watching Around the Horn and Pardon the Interruption and whatever was on NFL Network. So yeah, I got my fill of Pac-Man Jones. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So so let, let's talk about who Pac-Man is. Uh, so Adam Jones, born September 9th, nineteen eighty three, in Atlanta, Georgia. He ended up being raised primarily by his mother, Deborah Jones, and his grandmother, Christina Jones. Uh, his mother would end up giving him the Pac-Man name very early on in his life. Uh, I saw some like, conflicting reports as to why the Pac-Man name was given, but I listened to an interview and Pac-Man said uh, that his mom gave him the nickname because he would latch onto the bottle when he was nursing, and his mom thought he looked like Pac-Man, which is how ferociously he was chomping at the bottle. And therefore, she nicknamed him Pac-Man, and it stuck for life for him. That is a really interesting way to get a nickname. Yeah. yeah. And he said, like, so much so that, like, Adam felt like a weird name to him growing up because everyone would just call him Pac-Man. Uh, unfortunately um, for Pac-Man, his life would end up taking a very hard turn very early in his life. He grew up in a very... Um, very hard neighborhood in Atlanta. It was something that was kind of like uh, built in like crime and just kind of like very much like being on your edge. And it was very notable with that when Pac-Man's father, unfortunately was killed in an armed robbery in 1991. So very early in his life kind of grew up without a father figure, uh, his dad dying at the age of eight for him. His dad was only 26 when he died, like very, very traumatic way to start a life. Uh, but luckily for uh, Pac-Man, he ended up finding his uh, way through life in sports. In high school, played several sports. He was an All-American in track and in basketball. The basketball team he was a part of in high school ended up taking two state titles. Uh, but where he excelled in basketball and track, he did even much more in football. Uh, he ended up going to a school where it was an option. He played both sides of the ball, uh, offense and defense, uh, in high school. And I can see why going uh, right off of his accolades, his senior year, this is just in one year, he Sorry, ends we're, up we're giving... My, my, uh, Fr Freddy has popped into frames. So, like, <laughs> so he, he's moved on. So carry on, Jack. Sorry about what that. I loved is during the entire thing, Alex is giving like a Jim Halpert, like, can you believe this guy look at his cat <laughs> well, the entire time? Like, his little head just literally just popped right into frame unannounced. And I, I don't know I mean, how to respond and just to like, are you serious with this shit? That's that's honestly how that's how you react to Freddy a lot when you're around him, as you learned a, a week or two ago. Yes. Like, are you are you seeing this? <laughs> are you aware of this? Uh, but Pac-Man, like I said, uh, excels in football his senior year. In one year alone, he uh, gets 120 tackles, six INTs and 1,850 rushing yards. So excels on both sides of the ball. And this amount of talent uh, doesn't go unnoticed. He ends up getting a scholarship to go play for West Virginia and ends up going to go ahead and play for them for three total years. Now, this is unfortunately where things kind of go off the rails a little bit uh, for Pac-Man. Um, during his time at West Virginia, he was sentenced to one year in prison for a bar fight that happened there. Uh, and was ended up being suspended, uh, or his sentence was suspended, uh, so he got it revoked, but he ended up going on two years of probation. A uh, sentence that is going to come up a lot in this story, 
uh, Pac-Man uh, avoiding avoiding incarceration and getting probation. See, Pac-Man is not unlike Josh Gordon in that the main problem with continually putting him on probation, either from the league or law enforcement, is that this guy has the willpower of a sponge. Yes. Like, he just can't... Whatever he's doing that's getting him into trouble, he just can't not do it for that long. Right. And it, it ends up being something that I'm, I'm going to talk about it a little bit, but it really is something where it became a problem of just having like support uh, and like kind of like role models. Uh, his grandmother ended up dying while he was at uh, the University of Virginia. Again, somebody who raised him who was a very influential part of his life. He ended up only missing one game during his entire college career, and that was to attend his grandmother's funeral. Um, so it was a very like like put as much effort into football as he could, but eventually like he just started kind of losing those support systems, and it kind of like took its toll on him as it would uh, come to come out. Well, this is something we're seeing more and more with with younger and particularly collegiate athletes is, you know, a lot of them. Yes, they have families to fall back on, but a lot of times they're halfway across the country from that family. And the only people they have trying to, you know, steer this likely teenage to 20 year old kid who I mean, we all know how fucking stupid we were at at that age. Oh, God. Trying to steal all of (laughs) that all of that youthful exuberance, if you will, in the right direction. And frankly, a lot of the people that wind up being responsible for that are, you know, the athletic department at whatever school they're at. And frankly, they really half-ass that a lot of times. They, they will straight up enable kids if it, if they think it's, it's better to keep them on the field. Well, even that, like you, you give 20 year old Jack John $20 million, which is like a, like first, like, like lottery pick player. You give him $20 million. Jack John's going to jail. I don't care what support systems you put in front of me at that age. I'm going to jail because I'm doing stupid shit with that money. Oh, yeah. Uh, Uh, I am. I am not only going to jail. I am likely going to be the first ever uh, American citizen to be born here to be deported legally. Like they're just going to send me to fucking Siberia. (laughs) Look, we we don't have jurisdiction jurisdiction here, but we're sending you to all of the worst like Siberian prisons and you're just going to you're just going to die there. We're going to lure you into a large cardboard box with air holes and we're going to ship you to Abu Dhabi. Right, exactly. The Uh, plan. We're going to give you the normal. (laughs) So with with some minor character issues uh, at large, it kind of like NFL scouts and teams, they kind of look at like a player's full um, like ability, like on the field, intellectually and off the field. And while there's some issues with Pac-Man, there's still a lot of upside. He's an amazing uh, specialist on uh, special teams with his return game. He's a great defensive player. He's shown that he's fast as fuck. He's only 5'10", 185 pounds, but he is fast as fuck. And, and it's it's one of those things where they see, like, he's had a couple off-field incidences, but he's so fucking good. If we can get a good team around him, he'll be a superstar. Yeah, no, I, I remember Pac-Man coming into the league with uh, with Tennessee when he got drafted, and people thought this is the next champ Bailey we're looking at. Like people expected him to be an absolute freak of a corner and he had the ability to be, but I I think they, they underestimated how detrimental it can be when you don't have any kind of structure around you and, and what that can do your, your off the field life. 
I mean, the NFL draft is rolling around again. And I mean, we have stories like this every year where there's these guys where it's like, if you can just get them right, they right. have all the talent, all the ability in the world, they'll be great. Sometimes it does work out. Sometimes it doesn't. Pac-Man kind of somewhere in between. Yeah, and, and, it, and it wasn't unprecedented for someone his size to be that good. Uh, Cody mentioned Champ Bailey. Also looked at, like Bob Sanders, who played uh, free safety, who was just mm-hmm. a fucking monster at under six foot. Yeah. Like, that's the kind of player that you were getting with Pac-Man well, and, Jones. And yeah, and, and for a corner, you don't have to be 6'3". Right. Uh, a corner is corner and running back are really the two main positions on the field that you can play at at under six foot. Now, a, a running back, if you're five ten, five eleven, you'd like to be about two ten, as opposed to one eighty. But yeah. you know, Pac Pac Man was really the the perfect build for his position. And you right. can, you compare him a little bit to um, like the classic Washington uh, cornerback Daryl Green, a guy who wasn't very big but was so. Mm-hmm. ridiculously fast and shifty that, you know, as long as he could keep up with receivers route running, nobody could possibly outrun him. Pac-Man was like that, but built way more sturdily. Right. So all of this, like kind of weighing of everything, he ends up getting drafted in the 2005 draft sixth overall. And then first defensive player off the board. Uh, I looked it up just for some fun facts. Number one that year, Alex Smith. Ah, who Um, other notable, other notable people that were taken after him, uh, you have Cedric Benson. At number 24, you had Aaron Rodgers, if you were willing to wait that long. That, that was and, the story of that year's draft, if you remember yep. the coverage. How far is yep. Aaron Rodgers going to fall? And my favorite name of all time in a draft, Lofa Tutupu, also part oh, yeah. of that draft. Yeah, very good player, Lofa Tutupu. Um, a very good player, didn't have a lot of like length on his career, had some injury right. problems, but we saw that a lot with, with that era of, inside linebackers where yeah. they were just an absolute freak for five or six years. And then they broke some, something horrendous and couldn't play anymore. Right. So, so he gets drafted in 2005. Everything's looking on the upside. July 13th, 2005, uh, just immediately after he's drafted, uh, Pac-Man is arrested and charged with assault and felony vandalism after a nightclub altercation. Basically he was at a strip club fucking around and fighting and it immediately backfires on him. So nothing ends up happening. And a big part of his rookie year, he was holding out on his contract because the Titans who drafted him were like, hey, we don't want to guarantee you a shit ton of money in case you go get arrested. Um, We're going to kind of put in this clause where you have to be good and we're going to kind of assign people around you to not fucking commit felonies. And for most people, that is not an issue. Uh, but Pac-Man notoriously held out. <laughs> Pac-Man notoriously holds out uh, for a long while going into training camp, basically being like, "All right, I'm gonna like acknowledge my issues, but you know, it's cool now." So the season's about to kick off. It's it's September. It's football time, and on September fifth, two thousand five, the same fucking year, uh, Pac-Man ends up getting into a ver- verbal argument. Uh, with a valet service, uh, apparently uh, they made him wait for his valeted car, and Pac-Man did not approve of that. Uh, and then, allegedly, he didn't have cash on him anyway and got into a pretty um, substantial argument with the valet there at this uh, event he was at. Um, this... Who the fuck gets valet service and doesn't have cash on them? <laughs> if it's only a cash. Like, if you can pay with a credit card, then yeah. pay with your fucking credit card and this shut is... up. Like, what? This is also 
This is also 2005, where everyone fucking had cash, because it was 2005. Right. Um, and we'll also, we'll also come to learn later, Pac-Man, not a stranger to having large amounts of cash on him. Yeah. <laughs> um, he ends up getting he trouble. He can be generous at times. <laughs> he ends up getting in trouble with the courts in West Virginia, uh, basically saying that he hadn't been in contact with his probation officer enough uh, due to a previous arrest that he had. And then basically his probation was extended 90 days. So he's still kind of like pushing the edge of problematic versus being like a full-blown, like actual disruptive problem. Like he's teetering on the edge of being like, hey, you're getting into some off-field shit, but you're not technically getting arrested, which really is the NFL's whole MO. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically just don't do anything that's going to cost your owners money, like yes. something that's going to make you unable to play. Right. And right now, he's not he's not really being a criminal. He's just kind of being an asshole. Right. And just like a lot of hotshot athletes <laughs> at that age yeah. would be, frankly. And the Titans' patience with Pac-Man pays off in his rookie year. He ends up having a monster rookie year, getting 44 tackles, 10 pass deflections, and on special teams, racking up almost 1,400 return yards and one touchdown. Yeah, he was excellent. Yeah. He was great. Yeah. So he's he's just fucking playing out, being the player they wanted him to be. His off-field antics are questionable, but they're not malicious, necessarily. Yeah, Pac-Man was one of those guys who was so quick and so athletic, you could put him on anybody. Yeah, you could put him on the quickest slot receiver that existed, the shiftiest. Yeah. You know, you could put him on the rangiest outside guy. You could put him on a big possession yeah. dude like Marcus Colston, and he'd get up off the ground high enough yeah. that he could defend those passes anyway. I it's saw just, a, he was everything you wanted. I saw a stat, and it was just the weirdest thing to kind of wrap my head around. And I'm not sure if the stat has changed because a lot of the stuff that I was researching is from when he was playing. Uh, but it said he was the first player to ever record a sack and also be sacked. I could see huh. that, actually. Yeah. Which, it, it sounds like it should happen more, but also at the same time, what team is running a wildcat formation like that with their fucking corner? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I would be more uh, inclined to believe that had never happened because yeah. defensive players playing offense rarely ever happens, yeah. and they... Typically don't play quarterback. When yeah. But also play. Pac-Man showing that he's had that ability, like going all the way back to high school as well. The only other corner I remember ever getting lined up in the wildcat ever was Patrick Peterson. Um, yeah, they, they, they ran, they would run out Deion Sanders on offense sometimes, but I think exclusively a receiver as a receiver. Yeah. 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 Speaking of guys who yeah. were freak athletes, Deion Sanders and Patrick Peterson. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so we'll move into 2006 now. Uh, the season has ended. It is March 23rd, 2006. And Pac-Man Jones, to this point, uh, had been uh, noted that he claimed that he knew how to beat the NFL's drug test. Okay. <laughs> which is also hilarious because then he immediately gets charged with marijuana possession in Georgia. Yeah. Yeah, that's not something you tell anybody. <laughs> if you figured out a way to beat the NFL's drug tests, yeah. you know who you don't tell about that? The NFL. Everyone. Yeah. <laughs> But especially oh. the NFL. And but again, not not necessarily a huge, like world breaking, like you're getting kicked out of league. He's not he's again, he's ruffling feathers, but he's not necessarily doing anything super criminal at this point. I mean, I think we're all on this podcast pretty cool with weed, so it's not really an issue for for me at least. 
yeah i i i think uh i think we are all pretty pretty cool with weed some of us uh some of us extremely cool with weed (laughs) however later that same year in 2006 uh pac-man jones um ends up having a cadillac um that was uh owned by him uh seized by the police and they knew it was owned by pac-man jones because the word pac-man was stitched into the headrest that's a good sign (laughs) yep um no, no big deal. I thought you were gonna say I thought you were gonna say Cadillac Williams, <laughs> but that was a couple years later, I think. Um, no, no, no big deal. You know, your car is seized by the police. However, there is cocaine in this car, okay. and this car was a part of a, a big cocaine bust. Um, which again, the car was registered by Pac-Man Jones under his name. However, Pac-Man says, "Look, that might be my car, but I didn't have it at the time." And he claims uh, that he'd given it to Daryl Moore for a music video. <laughs> sure. And okay. the police are like, look, we were trying to sting Daryl Moore anyway for this cocaine. So we believe you. The guy who does all the cocaine had cocaine in your car. Okay. Yeah, that could yeah. happen. Sure. Um, with a little also, bit of just... <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, we should also add that all three of us on this podcast are much more cautionary about encouraging people to do cocaine. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to, I, I'm not going to say we're all cool with that. I think that's, that's yeah. a thing that you should probably avoid. Yeah. Weed is cool. Maybe all, maybe all people shouldn't dabble in cocaine yeah. is, is probably my official stance. Well, and if you, and if you do make sure it stops at dabbling. Because that's one that get, that's one that gets away from you pretty fast, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think that I believe just generally in decriminalizing <laughs> drugs. Don't get me wrong, cocaine makes you really annoying though. So yeah, yeah. be really careful. I, yeah, I, I'm yeah. not I I'm not saying it should be illegal because I don't think any drug should be criminalized. I'm saying you probably shouldn't do it. Yeah, because yeah, um, yeah, as I said, it makes you annoying. Unfortunately for Pac-Man, things start to kind of get a little bit more on the criminal aspect. Um, later in 2006, that same year where all of this shit is happening, uh, he ends up getting arrested and given another six months of probation for disorderly conduct and public intoxication. Uh, it was claimed that in a nightclub that he was at, and a lot of my sources say nightclub, but a lot of them also kind of curtail around the fact that Pac-Man was at strip clubs a lot. He really uh, was. For a, guy I, who, I, for a guy who had bad times at strip clubs all the time. He sure did like going back to the strip club. And and again, like uh, it's, it's he always, was on his true biscuit shit. It just was, it's the, always, the titties were calling. I, I can't just stay home. It's, it's always really funny. So I'm reading off of my notes of sources that I have. And a lot of them will go between like exa- exotic dancing club and nightclub and like adult dancing club. They're fucking strip clubs. Well, yeah, anytime you can't, that I say any of say, those, it's a you strip can't club. Say the, you can't say the word titty bar in a major publication. <laughs> so, yeah, they're going to be referred to by slightly, but we all know what you mean. Adam Jones is at the Boobenhausen, and this happens. <laughs> uh, That's uh, we'll, we'll see if we can slide a quick uh, Whitest Kids reference in there. Was he at Titopotamus? <laughs> Ooh, don't go there. <laughs> yeah, that's um, the movie Fantasia. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you made that up. There it is. That's the one. Um, but uh, what ends up happening, unfortunately, at this um, is uh, that Pac-Man uh, claims that a woman stole his wallet and then that same woman claims that Pac-Man spit on her. And it's basically not necessarily a physical altercation, but don't don't spit on people. Ever that, that's, generally. I consider that I consider that a physical altercation. Yeah. Like 
just in case anyone was planning to do this for some reason, just know that if you spit on me, I'm going to punch you in the face. Right. And that's just just what's going to happen. I would love to to claim the benefit of that here for Pac-Man, but unfortunately spitting is going to come up a couple more times. And it's, there's like a, like a technical legal, um, it's just like assault with bodily fluid, I think is what one of the articles that claimed that it was, uh, well, Alex, spitting, you can correct me if that's spitting a, is, uh, a real spitting thing. is the best case scenario. If you get charged with that ca- crime, I think that is probably the least yeah. offensive bodily fluid. And the other case is Louis CK. Oh, boy. um, so all this happens basically did, did in the get, first, sorry, did he get out of the Ukraine? Because I was kind of hoping he'd just be trapped there. I didn't know he yeah, was there. He, he, can keep he him. was there when things broke out. Jesus. And like, not only were, you know, are there logistical difficulties getting back, but I saw something that like, um, you know, men between a certain age were, were all going to get conscripted into fighting. So I kind of, you know, not that I'm hoping for conflict, <laughs> but I'm like, you know, if we're going to, we at least could get something out of this, you know. Uh, we just imagine... send him into battle with the Russian <laughs> shield on his uniform. <laughs> Imagine you're at the front lines of a global, like, war, and you look over, and there's just an orange hair fuck holding an AK, looking like, I don't know how to do this! An AK in one hand and his penis in the other. <laughs> I'm just gonna wave my, dicks at the, uh, wave my dick at the Russians. Well, it is, get... kind of a ho- it is kind of a homophobic culture, so that might, uh, might yeah. actually work. <laughs> um, so all of this basically happens in the first year of Pac-Man's career. Um, but, I'll tell you what, he played even better his sophomore year, uh, getting uh, a career-high 62 tackles, a sack, a forced fumble, 12 pass deflections, four interceptions, 130 return yards, one interception return for a touchdown, and four passes uh, defended, and 440 uh, punt return uh, yards. And three, three motherfucking punt returns for a touchdown. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. That is that is a big year. So for all of his off-field fucking antics, he plays the best fucking game or season of his life. And it seems like he's impervious to getting kicked off the team until, unfortunately, the biggest off-field uh, antics of Pac-Man's career happen in February 19th of 2007. He is at uh, Minx, which is a strip club, and he's there uh, with, of course, who else but Nelly, the rapper Nelly. <laughs> Another um, local connection. Which, um, there, and, and you know, I, I said this kind of briefly earlier, but it's so funny reading, like, real articles. Not just, like, ESPN articles, but, like, New York Post and, like, New York Times and USA Today articles where they have to talk about people making it rain, and they have to explain it to the fucking boomers that are reading articles what this means. So, basically, uh, Pac-Man is making it rain, and it was said that he had, like, $80,000 with him. And while making it rain, he uh, apparently got, uh, according to the um, club promoter who was there, was very upset. Uh, Pac-Man was upset that the strippers then start picking up uh, the money while he's making it rain and stop dancing. To which then uh, Pac-Man allegedly got physically violent and was thrown out of the club, thrown out of the strip club. So this is the one that I I really remember. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. Was he, I never, so the way it was explained to me the first time around was that what he was mad about was that they were picking up the money he was throwing because he wanted it back. And it wasn't fully explained in any of the articles I read. It was just that he was mad they were picking up the money. Yeah, it it seemed more like he was, 
Yeah, it sounded there like he was uh, madder that they they stopped dancing. Yeah, and, which but, I guess when I read it, that's how it made sense to me to rationalize yeah, I, like. But Stop if it fucking was... picking up this money. I'm throwing it at you. Like, continue dancing. That's how I read the articles that I read about it. But if it was the first one, how the hell <laughs> are you this upset right. about strippers keeping your money? You right. are the guy who goes to strip clubs. How do you not know how this works? Right. Have you been doing this the whole time? Right. Have you just been, right. been doing takebacks <laughs> with strippers? Are they going to have to have a playground style, no takebacks contract whenever you come in? He's dying and dashing strip clubs when they're not looking. He grabs the money and runs. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it was alleged that he grabbed a stripper by the hair and slammed her head onto the stage. Very do not the fuck do that uh, territory. Agreed. Um, so um, Jones and his entourage left, but unfortunately, another person who was claimed to have been from uh, Pac-Man's entourage came back with a gun and just shot up the strip club. Uh, damaging equipment and striking three people, including a uh, former professional wrestler who was a bodyguard at the club, uh, Tommy Urbanski, who was then paralyzed from the waist down. Okay. So there's a bunch of guys you should never bring to the strip club, but a guy who, if he gets in an altercation with management is going to come back and just start popping shots. Yeah. He is like number, at least number two on that list. Yes. Number one being Pac-Man Jones. <laughs> yes. So basically, the NFL is like, all right, we have to fucking step in now. And and Roger Goodell, in a very, very funny um, kind of like press note, is like, we have to uphold the integrity of the NFL, which I read, I read, the, I read the press release and I had the same reaction. I just started fucking laughing. <laughs> Ray um, Lewis is playing at this point in time. I, I just yeah. want you all to know that Ray Lewis was actively a member of the NFL yes. when Roger Goodell said yeah. this. But yeah. Uh, basically, Goodell is like, look, we can't have this shit right now. You've got to work some shit out. I'm suspending you for a full fucking year, which to this point hadn't happened in 44 years that a player had been suspended for a non-drug-related offense for that long. That's uh, kind of hard to believe, actually. Yeah. Uh, but basically, he was just like, hey, you're suspended for a fucking year, and after week 10, we can maybe look at an appeal. But he's like, you're just, you need to chill the I'll, fuck out. I'll, I'll say, so, did Ray Carruth technically get a lifetime ban? Or did they just let him go to prison and, and let that sort itself out? I, I think they just, I, I don't think the NFL needed to put anything in there unless, like, he somehow got super early parole. Yeah. yeah. I, I think they just kind of yeah. let nature take its course there. Yeah. And and to kind of wrap up the entire first part of this, uh, an article that I read said, uh, since he was drafted in 2005, and this is an article in 2007 when this incident happened, Jones has been, sus- uh, been arrested five times and questioned by the police ten times. So what does a man do when he loses his NFL job? Oh, boy. I, I know where this is going. Pac-Man yes. Jones then decides, well, I can't play football. I w- now, let, hold on. Yes. For all of you who are listening and have been listening for 21 episodes, wherever you're sitting listening to this right now, if you don't know the answer, I would like you to guess where this is going. Because yes. I think at least some of you will get it. Cody, Go do you know Jack. where he goes? 
I know exactly where he goes. Yes, I was. I, I didn't want to spoil it for anybody. Pac-Man Jones. Pac-Man Jones goes to professional wrestling. That's right. Another fucking wrestling tie-in, folks. We're doing it. Mm-hmm. It it's a very brief stint, and it's hilarious how brief it is. So basically, Ugh. he goes to total nonstop action, Ugh. which is TNA, which. In could, wrestling, could we could is, spend a whole fucking episode talking about TNA it, just in general. TNA is like a guy of promotions. Essentially. It's like getting kicked out of the NBA and then going to play like basketball in Slo- like Czechoslovakia. Like you're essentially you're not even going to the Euro leagues. You're just you're going wherever people will send you money. You're playing in a rec center somewhere. Yeah, if you basically. Want- you can spend hours just going on YouTube and looking up Brian Alvarez rants about TNA. So, it's very funny you say that. I found a Brian and Vinny episode where they talk about Pac-Man Jones. I, I, I may have listened to this episode also, yeah. Yes. And this what's was great... During, this during a particularly bad era of TNA, and that's really yes. saying something. Right. So basically, the entire thing is that the media... I'm a wrestling fan, so I get wrestling is not fun or cool. The entire time... Uh, TNA is basically like, hey, we got Pac-Man Jones, this huge, like, volatile, like, controversial, like, needle-moving person. And everybody in the media is like, Pac-Man Jones uh, stoops so low to go to professional yeah. wrestling. <laughs> like, um, I guess, like, so TNA, for a lot of its duration, including, I think, during this time, the, the guy writing the show was notorious... Well, I was to say notorious shithead Vince Russo. Also, Russo was there too. Yes. And, and, uh, yeah. Also, notorious shithead Jeff Jarrett. This was the precise kind of shit that they thought was a good idea. Right. So basically, they brought Pac-Man in to be a wrestler. Uh, the Titans immediately came back and went, "He's still the fuck under contract with us. You can't do this." Yeah. But they had already brought him onto TV and advertised him. So the Titans basically had to sue TNA. Um, and they essentially got um, a restraining order uh, against him, like being a physical combatant, and basically be like, "Look, he can be on your show, but no one can fucking touch him." Yeah. Um, yeah, we might want to use him when we're done uh, suspending him for being a bad boy, and uh... right, because because NFL contracts basically say you can't do anything that is going to like knowingly injure you, which pro wrestling tends to fucking injure people. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. that does happen. So, basically, he's in, like, this tag team title program with Ron the Truth Killings, who is a future guy I will talk about, I promise. Oh, he's um, a good guy, yeah. And he's in a tag team match where uh, Pac-Man Jones does zero offense. He just kind of is there. And then they win, and Pac-Man Jones is a wrestling champion. <laughs> yeah. This is the kind of stupid shit that they were... Let me put it this way about TNA. Yeah. The best... Like, because we could spend all night on this, but the best way right. to sum it up is that TNA had, they went out and they got like, they got like Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair and like, they were like old as shit, but like, they're still yeah. like huge stars. Like they, you should be able to bring in people like that and get viewers. It yeah. ran on the same nights or the, like at that time, WWE started their developmental brand NXT, which would wind up being like putting on some really good shows. Yeah. This time it was purely developmental. It had such stars as Wade Barrett, yeah. Darren Young, David Otunga, guys right. who the, the casual listener will have never heard of. And there's good reason right. for that because they weren't stars. NXT walloped TNA in the ratings. 
Yeah. Because TNA well, fucking sucked. Well, and, and TNA also fucked up because they, they, like, they started out and then they immediately tried to uh, book Monday Nights competitively against Monday Night Raw and they got their shit kicked in. Yeah. So this was just par for the course is where we're going. Yeah. And, and again, I, I, I want to do an episode on Dixie Carter. I want to do an episode on Ron, uh, Ron, uh, the truth killings. Yeah. I want to do two of those. Like, this is where I was like, I'm going to cross in like these eventually. But basically he goes to TNA and kind of like fucks around for three months and doesn't really do anything. He had like a move, quote unquote, where he would take like a small football and throw it at people's dicks. Ugh. And like, that was his whole thing. But like he couldn't <laughs> physically interact with people. They had this guy doing this and winning a title. Yes. Can you imagine? Yes. Uh, who was eventually replaced by Xavier Woods at that time, Consequences Creed. They literally put him in a tag team and then just replaced him. Yeah, Xavier Woods wound up being like a legitimate like mid-card star. Right. Uh, so then he ends up uh, coming back, back to football. Um, uh, but it ba- basically, as soon as he comes back, he gets traded to the Cowboys. And he kind of does so-so there, um, ends up getting in a little bit more trouble, par for the course, basically the same kind of shit that's been happening. He's also kind of starting to uh, rack up some neck injuries and some calf injuries, and basically just, like, kind of not playing a lot of games. To eventually to the point where in 2009, the Cowboys just say, all right, fuck this, you're too much even for the Cowboys, we're going to release you. (laughs) Home of Michael Irvin, you are too much for us. Well, you know... I guess what'll have to happen, you know, it's it's a shame because surely there can be no NFL teams with even less scribbles yeah. than the Cowboys. Yeah. So, and this is probably my favorite part that I didn't know. So in 2009, uh, a couple months after he's released from the Cowboys, um, he agrees to a principal deal uh, for a one-year deal with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers yeah. in the Canadian Football League. Um, and he's going to, you know, play for them and basically try to do one of those like career resurgence things. Um, however, in September, one month later, uh, he fucks up because he goes on a video online and basically confuses the CFL, the Canadian Football League, with the UFL, the United Football League. Yeah. yeah. And basically just, like, says completely inaccurate shit, and the team's like, all right, you don't even give a shit about being here. We're done. To which then the UFL offers him a contract, and he says, fuck that, too. So he has no teams. He'd spent most of that time Googling how many strip clubs are in Winnipeg. <laughs> so he kind of waits a year, recollects himself, and in 2010, he's attempting a return to the league. Um, he ends up holding like a little workout and a couple teams show up, basically kind of like bottom teams that are just kind of maybe trying to get a star player that might help them a little bit. Uh, and at that, and he's still, he's still in really good shape. Uh, at that workout, he, did a, he ran a 4 4 like four yeah. four two, like yeah. still incredibly fast, incredibly still got athletic. It. The abilities yeah. have never been an issue, right? Yeah. And the Bengals say, "Okay, we'll take yeah. you." There's your less and scrupulous team, is the sincerity. There it is. <laughs> yes. So the Bengals sign him to a two year deal, um, and basically he plays good enough to keep the Bengals. Like, like the Bengals are like, yeah, we we really like Pac Man, and most people, if they remember Pac Man Jones, they probably remember him playing with the Bengals. He was there for that, quite a while, really. He played he there for a surprisingly long time, and for several of those years, played really well. They yeah. started using him as he was one of the first guys that they used almost exclusively as a slot corner for a while. That experiment worked great. Yeah. They they loved him covering slot guys. 
He was he was a serviceable player for quite a while. He played there for eight years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, there, he would end up having uh, a couple of different issues. Um, he ended up having a very, very famous hit um, in uh, a very famous altercation, I should say, in the 2015 wildcard game oh, against the geez. Steelers. This fucking um, I, I was watching this game and I could not. Believe yeah. It. So like, the Bengals, Bengals at this point, could you get? The Bengals at this point in the wildcard game are beating the Steelers, a huge fucking rival, 16 to 15. Uh, however, the Bengals then receive back-to-back huge fucking penalties on defense. Uh, one of which is drawn by our man Pac-Man Jones, the other by Vontez Burfitt. Oh my god. A yeah. can you, fucking guy I mean, himself. Can, can you imagine Pac-Man Jones and Vontez Burfitt sharing the field at the same time? It happened for a while. Yes. And like, you're going to get what um, you're going to get. You're going to get good defense. You're also yeah. going to get the occasional back-to-back personal fouls. Yeah. So, so what happened is Joey Porter came onto the field, which was a Steelers assistant coach. Yeah, and Pac-Man and also got a damn ult- good linebacker in his own day. Yes. yes, and and Pac-Man gets into an altercation with him, basically being like, "This dude's on the fucking field," and kind of gets into a little bit of a scuffle with him, which draws an unsportsmanlike penalty. The Steelers then get into field goal range, kick a field goal, and win the game. Yeah, I mean, um, just... Pac-Man <laughs> find. Pac-Man is fined $29,000 for this uh, issue. Um, Joey Porter ends up getting fined ten grand as well. And fun fact, the Joey Porter rule is uh, instated, which prohibits assistant coach coaches from entering the field of play, which how the fuck that wasn't already a rule, I do not know. <laughs> I guess it hadn't had to be until <laughs> Joey Porter went out there to square up. Right. Um, I'm I'm really shocked that hadn't happened before with yeah. somebody though. Some of these NFL coaches are are former players, and yeah. they still got got a little yeah. like residual roid rage or something. Yeah. So Pac-Man's career ends pretty wholesomely with uh, Cincinnati. They end up releasing him in 2018. He ends up signing a, a deal with the uh, Denver Broncos. He plays with them in 2018, and then he ends up uh, getting released from them. Uh, at the end of the season, and in 2019, Pac-Man Jones announces his retirement. I glossed over a lot of him as a player and some of his conduct, but there's just so fucking much to it. Yeah. I wish I could give more time to how good of a player he was, uh, but there's so much around him that you have to talk about first. Great player, um, absolute shithead. Neither of those yes. things wavered at <laughs> yeah. any point in his career. I, no, I will. I will give two closing points um pac-man got a little bit of vindication in july 2018 he was at the airport with a friend and his wife and one of the airport staff for whatever reason just started talking shit to pac-man and was like i'm gonna beat your ass and pac-man was like i'm at the airport with my wife right now dude i don't have time for this i'm with my kids like don't don't talk to me and uh the video came out of pac-man beating this dude's fucking ass <laughs> you know what defensible like, yes, you are, you are at, you are at yes. the airport with your family. Someone tries uh, to yes. start shit. I'm, I'm on Pac-Man's you know, side on that one. Right. Don't know. the one time where Pac-Man was completely vindicated. And I wish I could end the story on such a great like roller coaster of it. He's finally like kind of cleaned his shit up. But unfortunately, in 2021, in February, he was arrested for misdemeanor assault. So, you know, it's 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 an it's a journey and we're all working to get there at the end. <laughs> so that that is a very, very quick uh glimpse at the life of Adam Pac-Man Jones and 
my question to you guys. Pac-Man was nicknamed uh, Pac-Man, of course, the famous video game character, very early on in his childhood. If you guys had to be nicknamed after a video game character for life, what would that video game character be? Um, let's see. I'm going to be honest with myself here. Uh, Donkey Kong. <laughs> I can I can see somebody calling me Donkey Kong. Now, Cody, I respect your opinion on that, but I disagree because I think we do have to be honest with ourselves. You and I are are Wario and Waluigi. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's just. And what it we doesn't are. it doesn't matter. Wh- Wario was actually my second pick, but it, it doesn't matter which yeah. of us is which. It works yeah. either way. That is. I think for appearances, I think for appearances' sake, you got to be Wario. But um, yeah, personality probably. wise, you could you could interchange either one. Yeah. Good answers, both of you. I I thought about this a little bit. I'm a huge fan of Pokemon. We referenced it earlier, but I could definitely see myself as a Snorlax just for how much food I shove down my throat and how often I nap. Yeah, yeah, yeah I could see that. And the 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 random places in which you choose to do so. Oh, I will sleep in the middle of a bridge and block traffic if I could. <laughs> yeah, if you were large enough to block traffic, that would probably have been like a problem that we have had by this point. All right. Well, uh, yeah, fun first couple topics, but um, we got a third. So let's move on. That brings us to me, and I am going to follow through on my promise from last week um, when I had to haphazardly talk about Jackie Stallone for Women's (laughs) History Month. Um, And I mentioned that there was an actual, like, you know, good, cool person (laughs) who... That I'd wanted to talk about instead, but didn't have time. So I'm um, going to try and do it justice this week. It's it's still March. Yeah. yeah. And, and in fact, I think International Women's Day was yesterday. So um, it was we, we can, you know, we can do it this way. So my gal this week is Nellie Bly. Um, I think some people are probably a little bit familiar with this story. Um, but Nellie, in my opinion, a very underrated American historical figure, um, she just, she just kicked so much ass. I don't, I don't know how else to put it other than that. She was just so great. And despite the fact that some people are familiar with her, um, I think she should be discussed even more. She is a phenomenal story and a, a great role model. Um, so among other things, I think she is one of the great examples of a go-getter that we'll talk about. That's just her personality type. Um, so to start off with, um, something not everyone knows, um, Nellie Bly, the name that we know, was not actually her real name. Her real name was Elizabeth Cochran. She was born in 1864. Um, this quality they mention of her being a go-getter, it seemed that she inherited that from her father, Michael. She just wound up taking it to an entire, entirely new level. Um, Her father, Michael, was an Irish immigrant and had been an ordinary mill worker who wound up being so ambitious that he worked his way up and bought the mill that he worked at and a bunch of other lands surrounding it. And as a result, they actually named that area after him, Cochran's Mill, which is outside of Pittsburgh. Um, Don't you miss that time in America where that was actually a real thing that could still happen? Yeah, (laughs) Mike Cochran was one of the, like, maybe five people ever that that actually works for. Yeah. Um, so as a kid, Liz was um, very stereotypically girly. Um, her nickname was Pinky because she loved the color pink so much. Then she became a teen. Oh, I thought she had a uh, a friend that was short and had a giant head and was always trying to take over the world. <laughs> now that's cool. 
There it is. Um, what are we going to do tomorrow night, Brian? <laughs> We're going around the world. So she became a teenager and had a full Alice Roosevelt-style rebellious phase and reinvented herself. Um, she was very, very smart, um, and she wanted to be seen as a sophisticated intellectual type. Um, her way of doing this, I'm not going to judge because I did a lot of, I did a lot of goofy shit when I was in my rebellious phase of teenager. I bought a lot of weird shit at Hot Topic. Um, her version of this was casting off the pink, pinky nickname and like her last name Cochran was spelled like the way you think of Cochran. She just added an E to the end of it. She wanted, um, her last name to be known as Cochrane. Um, so that was her, that was her sophisticated rebellious phase, I guess. <laughs> there, there's a lot <laughs> you more know she what? done. When I'm thinking of a lot of teenagers and mid uh, two mid-twenties people that have tried to prove how rebellious they are to the rest of the world, it usually ends up a lot more annoying than that. Yeah. They usually just get super into the Decemberists. Oh. <laughs> um, so she was very, very interested in writing. Um, she enrolled in college and... Okay, here's the first frustrating thing that happens. So, the woman who would go on to be known as Nellie Bly, who's going to go on to have all these accomplishments I'm going to talk about, she enrolled in college. It was under a different name, but um, nowadays it's IUP, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. She had to drop out after one term because she couldn't afford tuition. So, one of the most incredible accomplished people in American history could have been an alumni of this place and walked out with a degree and they could have hyped it up, but didn't. Because she didn't have enough fucking money. So that sucks. Well, thank yeah. thank God that never happens anymore. Yeah. <laughs> what a load of bullshit this is. Yep. Um, but she moves back in with her family outside of Pittsburgh um, in 1880. Um, she reads the newspaper and reads this horribly misogynistic column in the Pittsburgh Dispatch. And she was so... I forget what it was called, but it, it was it, essentially the point of it was... You know, talking about how women were subservient. I mean, just classic misogynist shit. I can just imagine this editor and the blowback of this going, I knew we shouldn't have run a weekly piece called Horribly Misogynist Column. I knew we were asking for trouble when we put it in there. Well, this editor winds up being an interesting character. We'll get to him in a second. So Liz was, she was rightfully so pissed off at this article. She writes in a response to the dispatch, an article um, under a pseudonym, Lonely Orphan Girl. Um, and the, the article was essentially a SoundCloud rapper now. (laughs) Um, so the editor was a guy named George Madden. He was so blown away by how good this article was. He actually ran an ad asking for the person behind the piece to contact him. Um, Liz takes him up on this and they meet and he asks if she'd be interested in writing another piece for the paper under that same pseudonym, Lonely Orphan Girl. Um, she takes Madden up on it. She writes another article called The Girl Puzzle about the effect that divorce has on women. Like groundbreaking stuff. Like there were not women voices in newspapers writing this kind of thing at that yeah. point. And, once that, and at the time, divorce is not necessarily something that you get a woman's perspective on either. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of society, frankly, didn't give a shit. Um, but, right. But, you know, Liz wrote about why they should. And, and here's the reality of it. And once again, it was so good. This time, Madden, he just straight up offers to bring her on full time. um, And she accepts. So Liz, not only has she gotten a full time job as a journalist in a major paper as a woman, she's only 21 years old at this point. Um, So an incredible accomplishment, not just in context, but for her age, for anybody. 
Um, and at this point, she, when women did um, write for papers or were, you know, even wrote books, they typically operated under a pen name. Um, she adopts the name Nellie Bly, um, which is the titular character in a folk song by Stephen Foster. Um, she adopts a lot of things from pop culture, but it was a, a song that she liked, and so she took the moniker on. So, yeah, she seems like she picks uh, pseudonyms like I pick Twitter names, basically. <laughs> she was daughter of gravy. I would, I would love a, uh, a stroganoff piece in, in the Times. Um. So right from the get-go, she starts stirring the pot, and I mean this in a good way. Um, She is a pot stirrer, but that is, in her case, is very complimentary because she's stirring the right pots. Um, She does some investigation on the working conditions for women in factories in Pittsburgh um, and writes some pretty awesome stuff. But predictably, uh, the factory owners uh, go to the newspaper and bitch about it because it makes them look really bad. I was going to say, I'm willing to bet that what she found there was uh, nothing short of horrifying. Am I correct? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's pretty much, I have not read the, uh, I, I couldn't find it, but uh, my understanding is it's pretty much exactly what you think of. And also keep in mind, well, I'll, I'll get to my next point, which is unfortunately, um, instead of telling the factory owners to shove it, uh, they folded like cardboard boxes and they reassign her to the quote unquote women's pages where she writes about things like fashion, gardening, culture, the things that they thought women were interested in. And so that's just what they where they'd send women that they hired in the paper. I mean, just, how to make the perfect meatloaf. Just just that's what we're, that's what we're going to have the best writer to walk in here yeah. in 50 years doing. We're gi- we're giving recipes. Jesus. Christ. So, so, look, look, hard hitting journalism. While you're great at it, we think you'd do better at lifestyles. Yeah, this this editor, George Madden, is a hit and miss character, I will say. And so <laughs> we my, brought you in for being groundbreaking, but you're breaking too much ground here. My 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 other point on this was um, so she writes these articles investigating on the, the deplorable working conditions for women in factories. And um, as a result of the blowback, she gets reassigned. Her voice gets silenced on that. This was 30 years before the triangle shirtwaist fire. Had any, (laughs) had they just let her write and people let people read it and give a shit. Maybe something could have been done. I'm not saying it directly could have been prevented, but in, in context that looks even worse than it would have looked uh, otherwise so anytime you talk about a journalist writing about working conditions at this point i think of two things number one the triangle shirtwaist factory and number two being uh upton sinclair yeah you yeah. know it just th- there was all kinds of and it, it wasn't just women but it was probably worse for women just based yeah. on the the places they tended to have to work right um so nelly understandably is not happy about this i mean she realized like you know my talents are kind of being stifled here because I'm writing things that, that, you know, the powers that be don't want written. Um, and so she vows to quote, do something no girl has done before. So finally she talks a dispatch into giving her a new assignment, but it's gotta be something extra intrepid. And so they, they do something almost unprecedented for women journalists. Um, they make her a foreign correspondent. Um, and she heads down to Mexico to report on the lives of people there in the 1880s. But so God, did they make her a foreign correspondent in the same way we would like to make Louis CK a foreign <laughs> correspondent? Like, were they just trying to maybe hopefully get rid of her or it's hard to say for sure. I don't think so, um, because she she gets into some shit and, you know, they they 
I don't know that they really get in her way of, of getting out of the shit. Um, because she... Instead of... Sorry, as I say, instead of being Louis C.K., I'm imagining her as Louis Black from The Daily Show, where she's just, like, violently angry and just, like, raising all of this shit. Well, she goes down there, and again, she does stir the pot, and again, I mean that as a compliment. Uh, the president of Mexico at this time was a uh, genuine dictator by the name of Porfirio Diaz. And like most dictators, he loves to imprison journalists. And um, Nelly spoke out against one such instance um, when a local journalist who had criticized Diaz had gotten imprisoned. Um, she spoke out against it in a dispatch sent back home to the newspaper. Diaz found out about this and him and officials are like, are you forgetting? Do you read what you just read? I'm a fucking dictator and I love to imprison journalists. I'm going to, if like I that, find you, I am going to throw you in prison. It's like that scene in the dark night where that pencil necked idiot tries to blackmail yeah. uh, Morgan Freeman after he figures out who Batman is. And Morgan <laughs> Freeman's like, you think that your billionaire boss spends his free time beating the bejesus out of criminals. And your plan is to piss this guy off. Yeah, your plan <laughs> is to blackmail this person. Um, so uh, Nelly did have to flee Mexico at that point because it was pretty obvious she was going to be thrown in prison. And um, not only for her own sake, but it probably would have caused like an international incident. <laughs> um, yeah. um, she got home um, and she talked even more shit about Diaz in the press. And now since she's back home, there was nothing he could do about it. I was um, going to say I fucking would, too. I, I would just be mailing him photos of me, like giving him the finger every goddamn day. <laughs> So this is all pretty, about invade America. Good luck. So this is all pretty rad. Um, but the running theme with Nellie is um, she's a go getter. She always wants to one up herself. Um, unfortunately, after coming back, you know, she can't really go back to Mexico. There's no really nowhere really else they want to send her. And so, so she gets relegated to the women's pages again. Um, she was unsatisfied about this before, even less so now. And understandably, this woman just. Damn near went to Mexican prison for you. Yeah. Yeah. After asking her or after asking you to give her an assignment to show how dedicated and competent she was and acing it in every way possible. She comes back and you want to stick her in better homes and gardens. God damn. I hate America sometimes. Well, Nellie, she does quit the dispatch, um, and she heads to the Big Apple, New York City, to find journalistic work there, because that's where a lot of the big newspapers in the country are operating out of at the point. Um, so that's a pretty smart calculation on the surface. As I said, a lot of work there to be found. But unfortunately, even in the hedonistic liberal haven of New York City, uh, she's still a woman, and it is still the 1880s, and most newspapers <laughs> are not particularly keen on hiring uh, women to do anything worthwhile. So, um, she finally, uh, she spends like four months, like not making any money. She's kind of at her wits end. She finally lands an interview, uh, with, um, a newspaper called the New York world, which happened to be run by a guy by the name of Joseph Pulitzer. Um, oh. and she gets an interview with just them. like half of the newspapers in America. Yeah. At that point. <laughs> the New York world though, was his baby. I mean, this was Pulitzer's. Yeah. Baby. That, that was his flagship, uh, flagship paper, yeah. I think. And um, she impressed them enough. They say, well, if you want to be a journalist so bad, we got just the assignment for you. Um, what they wanted her to do was to pretend to be insane and to go undercover to report on the conditions at the Women's Lunatic Asylum in Manhattan. 
uh, uh, quite the mission, obviously. But as we've said, Nellie, she's a go-getter, and she agrees to take the assignment. Now, is there like a safe word she can say <laughs> at some point? Well, we're going to get into just to, how to, just how deep yeah. into this she has. Because to I, I can I can imagine that. I'm just looking ahead, and I'm sorry if I'm stepping on anything, but it seems to me like when you are committed to an asylum, they don't just let you out when you go, okay, I was kidding the whole time, I'm not really crazy. I don't think they normally just open your cell door and let you walk out when that happens. So I hope they had some kind of an extraction plan here. This is also, like you said, the 1880s. I'm sure she didn't have to try hard. I'm sure she could have been like, hey... I'm an intelligent woman, and I plan to change the world. They'd be like, well, this woman's clearly insane. Let's bring her in immediately. Hey, I do the same job as you, and I think I should make as much money. We got a padded cell for you right over here, Barbara. Get your ass in here. We are going to touch on all of those issues here. Oh, god damn it. (laughs) This was no small undertaking. I mean, even in these fucked up times, like she couldn't just show up in an asylum and ask them to take her in. There's a whole process involved. So right. what she does is she. Although I would argue that that uh, that should lead you to be committed right there. <laughs> if you go into an 1880s asylum and be like, "Can I live here?" Okay, well you you're insane? clearly batshit crazy. <laughs> I thought Shutter Island, and it sounds fantastic. So, so what she does first thing she she checks herself into a, a women's boarding house, which is a lot easier to do. Um, not necessarily like it's not an asylum; it's just a boarding house. Minor um, leagues. She to convince everyone there that she was insane, she'd deprive herself of sleep. She would just stay up all night um, to make her eyes look like really fucked up. And she would just start making like wild accusations against all the other boarders. And she um, claimed that she suffered from amnesia. She said she didn't know how she got there or who she was. See, if I were her, I'd have just started getting really hammered all the time. Because if you deprive yourself of sleep and get wasted, something that I learned in college, you do go a little insane for a while. She was so convincing in this role. The staff, they had her examined by police, by a judge, and by several doctors, all of which came away convinced that she was insane and needed to be committed, which I'll I'll discuss a little bit more about that in a second. But, like, the whole thing was so perplexing, it actually attracted some media attention. The New York Sun wrote an article about this character. The title of the article, Who is this insane girl? (laughs) I'm pretty sure that was the uh, title of, like, every other article that was written about Lindsay Lohan in the (laughs) mid-2010s. And if you're you're the New York Sun's competition, the New York world, reading this, I don't even... Like, are you laughing at this point? I'm like, you you people are so fucking stupid. You're just fist-pumping in fucking board meetings. Like, Like we're winning right now. They weren't even expecting that. Um, We we didn't even have to give them the rope, and they still hung themselves. So... One doctor in particular, um, like the main doctor to examine her, um, declared her, quote, positively demented and a hopeless case. She had been pretending to be insane for like a, a week. And, they, and so, they, they admit her to the women's uh, uh, lunatic asylum after that point. On one hand, that makes me question um, just how bad the, the medicine of psychology was oh, at yes. that point. Yes. But I mean, it, it it was genuinely horrible, and yeah. in many ways still is. Um, I mean, the the, the medicine the, at the time know, was: does a lobotomy fix this? Ah, shit, it didn't. Well, yeah. next time maybe. And and things are miles better than that now. And there are still a lot of problems with that. You know, uh, many 
parts of the healthcare industry, but particularly that part of the healthcare industry has some issues. But yeah. also, I, I guess I, I wonder if this is a thing you could do. If you just went in there acting as nutty as you possibly could, could you fool somebody who was like a big shot psychologist into thinking you were insane? If you just unceasingly acted as crazy as you, you yeah. possibly could. So now I'm thinking of uh, a, a nice little thought experiment. We're going to have to to act out at some point in the next year. That's how this oh podcast God. is going to unravel finally. <laughs> so, um, yeah, her first point here is made, which is just how little it takes for them to commit women to asylums. And like, you know, <sighs> One thing that that she mentioned when she, you know, this experiment was over, because um, that was one of the things people were shocked by, like how easy it was to pull this off. And one of her comments was like, yeah, the main doctor examined me. He barely gave a shit about me. He spent the whole time flirting with the nurse. <laughs> and so, like, look, all three of us have been pretty open. You know, we we deal with our own, you know, mental health. You know, we, we've had our own battles with that. And there's a lot of slings and arrows that go along with it. There is a very long and sordid history that has gotten better to some degree, but, you know, hasn't gone away of women dealing with mental health issues and being considered hysterical and just being locked up like this rather than actually being treated um, and having their condition taken seriously. And and I I think that's just kind of based on the standard patriarchal view of women. I think... Even if they're at the same level of mental health issue as, say, you know, any one of us were, their prognosis would probably be considered worse by a lot of professionals just because people still have this, for some reason, view of women as less resilient and less able to, you know, power through whatever whatever it is that it takes to to get out of this. Obviously, that's complete and total horseshit. Right. But. That's that's an attitude that is still very much a problem. Yeah. Well, that and like it's even like a part where it's just like disregarding females' emotions. I mean, like, oh, you're just on your period. Like, no, no, these people are having legitimate mental health issues, and you're just being a douche. Yeah. So when when women just complain about things not being as good for them, they say yeah. you have mental health problems. When they say they have mental health problems, they say you're just on your period. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, it, it just women couldn't win, especially at this time. Right. So they commit her to the Women's Lunatic Asylum in Manhattan. Um, when she got there, she actually dropped the facade. Um, kind of want to see what happened. She acted totally normal. The response was the staff didn't give a shit and would just describe her normal <laughs> behaviors as symptoms of the illness. Um, <laughs> so I want to see those reports so bad. <laughs> I want to look in this file so fucking bad. So... The conditions are every bit as bad as she'd heard, and I will I will give a content warning for people. This is this stuff's pretty fucked up. Uh, the nurses were violent and abusive. Um, the food was barely edible, gruel. The water was filthy and couldn't really safely be drank, but that's all they had. Um, some patients patients that had the worst issues they were tied together by ropes. Um, they made patients sit on hard benches in cold rooms most of the day, doing nothing. There was piss and shit and rats all over the place. And some of the words, the bath water was cold and they would reuse it from patient to patient as well as the bath towels. And that included, because the conditions were so bad, women were getting like abscesses and sores. And like the women who didn't have those would have to use like the same bath water and towels as everyone else. It was fucking horrible. Like ah. they'd, they'd heard rumors. That's the reason why the New York world was interested. They'd heard rumors about this. Yeah. No one could get in there and confirm it. Nellie Bly gets in there and it's every bit as bad as she's heard about. 
it's not often that Rikers is a better alternative to where the fuck you are. Or at this point, Alcatraz, probably. Yeah. But yeah. So Nelly's takeaway, um, and I mean, this is right on point. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing a bit, was that like, women are sent here ostensibly to be treated, if not cured. All this place would do with these kind of conditions would just drive, even someone who's not insane would just drive them insane. How can anyone hope to be okay in a place like this? So it didn't take long for Nellie to see what she needed to see, and she started asking the staff to release her. But again, they were considering her insane. They thought her saying, I'm okay, you need to let me out of here. They didn't give a shit. Um, thankfully, the New York world, they're keeping tabs on her this whole time. They're able to intervene, and it takes them 10 days, but they do get her out of there. So she was in this place for 10 days in a mission that Jesus. was only supposed to be very short. Um, so she publishes a series of articles um, about the experience in the New York world. They later compiled them and published them as a book in 1887. Um, it's a huge sensation. I mean, the public is just absolutely shocked by all this. Um, I'm sure they were. I would hope they were. <laughs> and so historians, they look back on this and they argue this was the precursor to investigative journalism as we know it today. Like, you know, going and investigating, reporting things kind of existed. But this kind of like undercover, like almost more detective like work, that wasn't really a thing before Nellie Bly did this. And now that's a huge thing. So like investigative journalism, as we know it in modern times, a lot of historians argue was invented by Nellie Bly doing this. So not only was this an remarkably brave and important uh, mission for her to go on. It set the stage for journalism to come um, even now, 150 years later. So um, it, as well, it created a new avenue for women to work their way into the mainstream journalism roles. Cause these kind of undercover roles, newspapers started hiring women into those roles more often because I think people would expect it less. So um, I'll draw one odd parallel, <laughs> you know, another journalist who, um, started off his career um, by investigating deplorable conditions, um, in his case, um, at a, a mental facility for youth in New York. So I I do know this. I, I know how I you was, know this. So. I, yeah, I bet you do. I was uh, actually going to make this comparison, but I didn't want to step on what you were doing. But uh, yeah, Geraldo Rivera. Absolutely. That's what was my guess That's, was going to be. He, and uh, I think you know because of the uh, documentary Cropsy, which is Cropsy, quite fascinating. Yep. Um, they talked about this. Yeah, he had a unbelievable, just shocking report back in like the 70s or 80s about the conditions, including video at this point. Um, it was silent for you. It was, it was horrid. It, it was some of the most – I mean, you, you talk about trigger warnings. I mean, if, if you are not in a very stable place, do not watch that footage because it it is hard. And I, I just I can't imagine what possessed, first of all, anybody to allow that to happen. But also, after creating that kind of environment, you let a news crew with cameras in like you thought people weren't going to care yeah. about this. Yeah, it's it's there are places that exist in the world, whether people want to acknowledge it or not, where the people that our society doesn't know what to do with, they just get thrown in a place and then we don't think about them. And um the comparison between Nellie Bly back then and Geraldo Herrera or Geraldo Herrera when um, he, he, he ran this piece was they were going and looking at these places and exposing like, this is what's happening that you don't see. So that's the comparison, but let's contrast how Geraldo followed that up. He completely botched Al Capone's vault. He ran a trash TV show in the nineties and now is just a 
lame, uh, run-of-the-mill conservative hack. So how did Nellie Bly follow this up? Remember, she's a go-getter and she's always trying to one-up herself. So in 1888, she first pitched the idea to the New York world of uh, trying to recreate Jules Verne's novel Around the World in 80 Days. Um, pretty ambitious. And that's tough. It took a lot of talking in. Well, at least it was then. Now, nowadays, not so much. It took a lot of um, talking the newspaper into doing it. I mean, they, they went back and forth on it for a long time. Um, the next year, um, on November 12th, 1889, um, the editors at New York World finally said, okay, you got the green light. By the way, this starts in two days. So <laughs> she uh, departs a steamship from Hoboken, New Jersey to Europe uh, to begin her journey. Um, with her, she packed only an overcoat, a few changes of underwear, her toiletries, and about $260. And I would have brought another dress. Like it just she she just the only dress she brought was the one she was wearing. That was it. God damn. Talk um, about living rough. I mean, she she wanted she was not going to half-ass this thing. So, um to compete with this, a New York paper, the Cosmopolitan, um they sent one of their reporters, Elizabeth Bisland, around the world in the opposite direction starting on the same day. Um to try and beat her time. And um, when Nellie found out about this, she like pretty spectacularly hand waved the whole thing away. He's like, she was like, I don't give a shit. I'm not doing a race. You can all do whatever you want to do, but I'm doing my thing. I don't care. Um, we'll revisit See, that later. This is, I, I, I have, I have been familiar with this story for a while. And this is the thing I think I like the most about Nellie Bly. She's so cool in so many ways. She's always trying to one up herself. She's never trying to one up anyone else. Yeah. yeah. She's always like, I don't give a fuck what you do. I have enough confidence in what it is that I am doing. I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. I don't need your input. I don't need anyone to compete with me. I don't need to make myself feel like I'm better. I'm just going to do this because I want to do it. So she traveled exclusively using steamships and railroads. Um, her path was mostly unimpeded. Um, I read, except there are some delays going across Asia which led to some adventures, including um, I saw visiting a Chinese leper colony and buying a pet monkey in Singapore. So <laughs> no, that's just fun. When, when she had some delays, she that's, had some fun. That was in the last Bill and Ted adventure, wasn't it? <laughs> so she finally yeah. arrives back in Hoboken um, on January 25th, 1890. She traveled the world, circumnavigated it in 72 days. So, um, uh, of course, the Jules Verne novel around the world in 80 days. Um, not only did she prove you can do that, but she beat it by eight days. Um, I was going to say she beat Phileas Fogg. Uh, Elizabeth Bisland, by the way, arrived four and a half days later. So the one trying to do a race uh, <laughs> arrived several days later. But to her credit, she also beat Phileas Fogg. So um, now an interesting anecdote. This record only stood for a few months. It was bested by a traveler by the name of George Francis Train. Which sounds like a little bit of a bummer, this dude coming in and just wanting to beat this record in a matter of a few months. But a fun fact about George Francis Train, his previous circumnavigation of the world, most believe, actually inspired the character of Phileas Fogg. So kind of neat. I mean, he saw someone do what he did and decided to go back and do it again even better. Um, yeah. You can't really fault him for that. Um, so, after this, 1895, a bit of an odd character turn. Uh, 
Nellie Bly takes a step back from kicking ass across the world to marry a 73-year-old millionaire named Bob Seaman. <laughs> Are we just mad losing the rest of the story now? Uh, okay, so uh, I think I think let's let's take a real quick vote <laughs> for side characters, better or worse name than Chuck Denham. It's pretty close. <laughs> You know, I'm going to say Chuck one... Denham still, because this yeah. is still on. It's almost a little too on the nose. Yeah. yeah it's like, can you repeat that man's name to make sure I heard that correctly? Bob Seaman. Cool. It, it, well, cool, cool, Robert, cool. but I'm calling him Bob. Yeah. His, his, his friends call him Bob. So, uh, Bob, he ran a company that manufactured milk cans and boilers. Um, Bob's uh, health deteriorated not very long after he married Nellie because... Bye. Sorry, did you say the man who was named Seaman is making milk cans? Milk That's cans, right. yeah. The Seaman guys in the milk Cody, Cody and I looked at each other, and we just couldn't hold that in. <laughs> if you get a... And I don't know what the company was called. I hope it was the Seaman Milk Company. I don't think it was, but I really hope it was. Because <laughs> it's like... I mean... You, oh, you, man. You, you get a... So... You, you, get a, 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 you get a canister of milk delivered to you. And you look in the bottom, and it's got the little semen mark there. And you just look at the thing, like, "Am I sure I want to drink this?" Look, <laughs> if, if there's one thing your family can trust in the morning, it's semen milk. As to how but we're the we're the se- we're the semen company. We make milk and uh, glue. And <laughs> as to how, you know, uh, as to how a seventy-three-year-old milk canister manufacturer named Bob Seaman married a 31-year-old Nellie Bly, one of the most accomplished people in the entire world at this point. I don't know. I, I must have just been the most charming son of a yeah. bitch because it seems like I, Nellie Bly was not given also, to just Also, I, I have to now. ask, how did Seaman come into her life? <laughs> Very well. Um, um, yeah, I, I'm thinking, uh, yeah, <laughs> repeatedly. No, um, I'm thinking... Uh, <laughs> I, I'm thinking there there's a possibility where she was just like, look, I'm a woman living at this time. I'm never going to get compensated properly for what it yeah. is that I'm doing. I should be a fucking millionaire, but they're never yeah. going to give me that. So let it, me just marry this old fuck, wait for him to die, and then yeah. su- and that that's how I'm going to get mine. It's, like, it's a lifetime achievement a award. It's a lifetime achievement award. She's like, look, I've served yeah. my time. I get this. He's 77. Life expectancy is like 50. He's going to die soon. So um, Bob Seaman's health deteriorates and he dies in 1904. Nellie took over his company and it was kind of interesting. She tried apparently to run it in this really like egalitarian way. Treat her employees really well. Give them lots of benefits. That part worked. That part worked perfectly. Uh, unfortunately, the downside Take of that... Notes. The, the downside of that is that Nellie was horrible with money, apparently, and the company went Oh, back. no. So she managed, <laughs> oh, no. she managed everything except the books, um, which was too bad. Um, but during that time, uh, Nellie actually, um, she had two patents, um, one for a new design for milk cans for them and uh, uh, a new kind of garbage can, apparently. I hope her patent for the milk can was just not putting the word semen on the front. It sold amazingly. Um, So after the company goes under uh, later in her career, she re-enters the journalism world during World War I. She was one of the first uh, to report from the war zone during that time between Serbia and Austria. Um, She had a brief hiccup when she got arrested for being suspected for being a British spy, but she managed to get out of that. Um, 
She also, um, the other thing she was doing around that time, she covered the women's suffrage movement in the 1910s when that was really popping off. Um, Her articles she wrote on that were absolutely unapologetic, as you would expect, um, and in favor. In fact, I think she would write headlines saying that um, suffragettes are outright superior to men. Um, So, yeah, I mean, she was was just doing her Nellie Bly thing, um, accurately predicted the year in which uh, women's voting rights would uh, come into effect, which was 1920. 1920, yeah. And so final point on this, 1922... um, Nellie Bly died of pneumonia at age 57, only two years after one of the most brilliant and accomplished people in the entire world was granted the right to vote. She died two years after that at 57, which Jesus. just goes to show, like, I get that that institutional prejudice is a little bit deeper. Like there's all kinds of different intertwining socioeconomic reasons, but when you really break it down sometimes and just what it means, Nellie Bly could not vote. Nellie Bly, one of the most brilliant people in the country was not allowed to have a say in who was running the country and who was representing her until two years before she died in her fifties. This is, why do we do this? This is, this is the same question you have to ask about, like after episode seven, yeah. where we did Bass Reeves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wound up being or, or when one I talked about the, Ben Banneker, same guy. Yeah, or same type. One, of, like been a, one of the one of the most like genuinely, uh, yeah. absolutely wonderful to have him around for everybody that that you know utilized his skills in any way, shape, or form. He grew up with people owning him, yeah. and Bass Reeves never got to vote. Right. Ben Banneker like was smart enough. He just made a clock out of nowhere and then wrote a right. letter talking shit to Thomas Jefferson. You think that guy right. maybe should have had a say in who was representing right. him? Right. And and just to just to confirm, what year did she uh, die? Nineteen twenty-two. Nineteen twenty-two. Um. So does that mean she did get to vote in the uh, nineteen twenty election then? Because if not, she missed fucking presidential elections even with the right to vote. I'm actually not sure what time of year um, the amendment was passed to give women the right to vote. She, you know, I she may have been able to vote in other elections. Yeah. Rather but still, than regardless, yeah. maybe got to vote fucking once for a president At is most. bullshit, and not even for sure yeah. then. Yeah. What a crock of shit! <laughs> yeah. Why do we what? do shit mm-hmm. like this? Um, so Welcome he, to our new segment, What a Crock of Shit. <laughs> just one of the many crocks of shit in this whole story. But in spite God. of that, we, we've covered a lot of crocks of shit. Really. In spite of that, Nellie Bly, one of the truly most kick-ass yeah. people we've talked about or will talk about. I think yeah. a genuine American hero, someone everyone should learn from, emulate, go back, read her stuff. I mean, it's compelling even today. Her trip around the world, fascinating. I mean, not many people in American history have done anything uh, uh, quite as cool as this. Um it's, it's just a shame all the bullshit that she had to deal yeah. with. Um, but that just adds to her story. So yeah. um, my big question to the two of you. So, you know, if you were to take um, a trip around the world, like, because she was traveling by herself. And the only time she went on these adventures was when she essentially had layovers in Asia, um, visiting leopard colonies and buying monkeys and the like. So let's say you're doing a trip around the world and you're doing it by steamboat and train like, like Nellie was doing. What are you doing to occupy that time? So if it has to be steamboat or train, well, visiting leper colonies and buying monkeys is already taken. Yeah. <laughs> so that fucks my list. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I am. Man, um, God, this is a tough one, but you know, I'm gonna stay true to my own character. This is what I do when I'm on vacation. I'm just going to eat at strictly local places yeah. and and buy a bunch of their food and take it with me on the train and just kind of like do my own little food review there, just sampling different food from different places. Um, also, another thing that's that's really kind of fun, especially back then when this was a bigger medium. But if you ever are in a place that you're not familiar with if you get a chance to read their local newspaper it's actually really interesting how you know everything's different and yet everything still always kind of stays the same wherever you are especially in a small town that's kind of a neat little hobby if you ever get a chance if you're on vacation i'm reading a lot of local newspapers and eating a ton of local food oh yeah you're, by the end of it when you come back you're gonna look like homer simpson wearing the moo moo <laughs> I mean, I am That's another maybe thing you can do. Go three days from that now. <laughs> like on your on your trip across Pacific Ocean, maybe you can... Uh, yeah, I can buy a legit, like, actual authentic Moomoo. Yeah, fuck yeah. yeah. That's a good goal. Realistically, of the era, I'm probably bringing, like, a notebook and just, like, observably writing down all of the weird shit that I'm seeing, kind of doing, like, live during, like, on a train in the 1800s. You're going to see some weird shit. And I feel like I would document that. But if I'm true to myself, like Cody just said, I'm bringing a bottle of Malort and I'm giving it to every <laughs> fucking local I see. And they're drinking Malort and I'm just going to laugh. Now You that... are the Johnny Appleseed of Malort. <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about causing international incidents. Holy shit. If, I just if imagine this your journal doesn't I'm... start World War III, that will. I'm pulling up in Tanzania and I'm causing chaos. <laughs> You're just you're sitting on a train writing in your weird things journal in Germany. <laughs> there's a man wearing leather shorts. We'll report later. Um, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> Getting a real weird vibe. Not gonna lie. All right. Well, good answers both. Jack, I might do something similar, except I'm just going to sketch a bunch of cartoon characters fucking each other. Um, Working on this real big veiny bastard. Or that might finally be my chance to bring this uh, this big far side collection I keep bragging about, but I haven't had time to read. <laughs> yeah. People wanted to talk to you on the train, but they noticed you had an encyclopedia of Garfield, and they decided we shouldn't talk to that guy. Yeah, I see. I I, I noticed a lot of parents like quickly ushering their children away from me. <laughs> You'd be reading the entire Garfield beginning to end, trying to get through it on your journey around the world, and. By the time you got back, you would also be committed to an asylum. <laughs> if if some country doesn't outright detain me along the way, yeah. yeah. No, realistic Alex has a bunch of Heathcliff's uh, drawings, and he's trying to comprehend what the fuck they mean, and he still can't <laughs> figure it out by the time he's done with this trip. Yeah, I'm gonna, there's going to be a lot of yelling on the train. <laughs> um, <clears throat> all right, well, well, three fun topics this week. Hope you all uh, had as much fun as we did. And so we'll get us out of here. Um, let's go around the horn and hawk our shit. Cody, where can the people find you? Find me over on Twitter. I am at Son of Gravy for 2069. You can find me weekly right here at Here's a Guy on Spotify and Stitcher. And sometimes, like uh, tonight, for instance, you can find me on Jack's Twitch stream playing some D&D with uh, the boys here in Pookie. That's right. Uh, Jack, John, how about you? Where can the people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Jack John Jose. You can find me on Twitch, like Pookie, or fuck, like Cody said, with Pookie. Uh, you on... son of a bitch. 
I don't even have a response to that. I completely fucked up. At twitch.tv backslash Jack John plays games. You can also find me drunk, uh, getting hammered on Spotify on the uh, podcast Belchcast. Uh, but on Twitch right now, we're playing Grand Theft Auto V, and I'm only using a steering wheel. And it's fucking hard, but it's a lot of fun. Right on. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Turpin for Prez. That is Turpin, the number four, P-R-E-Z. Uh, follow the podcast account. It's at Here's a Guy Pod. Um, and as you heard in the beginning of the episode, we have a Gmail account. It's Here's a Mailbox at gmail.com. Send us something. If we like enough, we'll read it on the episode, just like we did uh, for our friend Pookie at the beginning of this show. So uh, we look forward to hearing from all of you. Um, so as uh, and as everyone has alluded to, uh, make sure to check out Jack's Twitch stream this evening. Um, we plan on doing session two of D&D. It should be a great time. So we hope to see you all there. Um, well, I guess to wrap this thing up, Cody, um, I can't really think of a good way to wrap this up. So, Cody, do you have a tagline to bail me out? I do indeed. All right. Well, uh, in keeping with the theme of uh, Women's History Month. Oh, very nice. Very nice. I'm excited to hear this. Uh, so, yeah, I won't drag mm. this out any further. Thank you all for joining us. Um, hope to hear you next week. Um, or we hope you hear us next week. And, uh, Cody, yeah, go ahead and hit us with that tagline. Good night, everybody. And remember, equal pay for all genders. Absolutely.